quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The human tragedy on a terrible, terrible scale. The massive explosion at a hospital in Gaza City. This hospital is vital to the northern part of Gaza. The explosion in Gaza was caused by an Islamic Jihad rocket that was misfired. For now, we don't know. We have nobody to confirm anything. These images are having a huge impact across the region. These protests are only going to get larger. All of that made the president's planned summit in Amman, Jordan, effectively untenable. President Biden is meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu at length. Based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not you. Morning, everyone. A very significant day on the world stage. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York, Aaron Burnett, Clarissa Ward, Caitlin Collins on the ground in Israel, where President Biden is right now at an incredibly volatile moment in the war between Israel and Hamas after an explosion at a hospital in Gaza killed hundreds of innocent civilians. Officials there claim that it was an Israeli airstrike, but Israel insists it was a misfired rocket that was launched by Palestinian militants, Islamic Jihad, right near the hospital this morning. President Biden appeared to take Israel's side. Listen. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But there's a lot of people out there not sure. So we've got, a lot, we've got to overcome a lot of things. Shortly before Air Force One landed in Israel, the Israeli military laid out photos and video evidence they say blames the explosion on the Islamic Jihad militant group. Now, despite Israel's denials, a wave of anti-Israel protests erupted in cities across the Middle East. In Lebanon, hundreds of protesters tried to break through security barriers near the U.S. embassy. Police fired tear gas and water cannons to drive them away. We have team coverage with correspondents on the ground in Israel and across the region. Let's start with Aaron Burnett live in Tel Aviv. Uh, Aaron, this is a very volatile situation. What is President Biden walking into today? Incredibly volatile. And those images that you just showed, those four images from across the Middle East, say it all. That is the situation here and that the heightened tensions uh, you've got, you know, in, in Beirut uh, calls for a day of unprecedented rage ahead. All of this uh, because of what happened at that Gaza hospital and because of the anticipation of Israel launching a broader assault on Gaza. It is an incredibly tense moment. And as you know, Phil and Poppy, part of the reality is part of the problem is President Biden was walking in thinking that he was going to be able to show he was meeting with the Israelis as well as with Arab leaders, including uh, the leader of the Palestinians. That meeting, of course, was canceled because of the hospital uh, attack. So while he says he'll be speaking to them on the airplane, that is a huge blow. It is a blow to what his efforts uh, are here. And it is you really can't underestimate the significance of the fact that those people and those images you saw, it was after dark when that hospital was struck. It was hours later, 11, 12 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m., when we saw those protesters come out all through the night. It wasn't as if they woke up in the morning and decided to do it. They got up and they went out in that moment. And that should give you a sense of the intensity and the passion here. 
Aaron, overnight, Israel uh, not only spoke at a press conference, but also provided images that they say is proof that they did not. This was not a strike from Israel. Can you walk through what they are putting out there? Yes, and I'll show you guys first of all. They literally are putting out here yeah. documentation that they should say proves that they did not do this. Um, they are saying, for example, basic things that when you have an Israeli strike, it is followed by um, craters, right? Mm -hmm. That they're, they're saying craters, and that these weren't here. They're saying that the, the rocket actually came from a group called the Islamic Jihadist Group from a cemetery right next to the hospital that it launched there and it failed. Now they say because it was so close, uh, the large blast is actually evidence not of its power, but of its short trajectory. They say that they can still see the rocket has a lot of its propellant fuel. So it obviously didn't fall, uh, travel very far. So this is the argument they're laying out. And they literally, as I said, are putting out pictures they took from a drone. And they also are putting out audio of what the IDF claims are terrorists talking about the misfire. Now I should say CNN can't independently verify what caused the explosion or the authenticity of that Exchange, but I will say they put this out. They even put out a map here showing how many misfires they say have happened since the beginning of this war. Now, uh, 12 days ago, uh, 450 failed launches by uh, jihadist groups in the Gaza Strip. They're putting all of this out. The question is, when you look at those pictures of people on the street, does it matter to those individuals? No, because they believe this was Israel uh, in the eyes of the international community. Maybe this does make a difference. But in the eyes of uh, the streets, no. I want to go to CNN international correspondent Clarissa Ward and Ashkelon, Israel. And the hospital blast to that point is a huge inflection in this already tense war. President Biden now on the ground. What is your biggest takeaway at this hour? I mean, there's no question this feels like a watershed moment in this already gruesome conflict. We've been speaking, Aaron, to doctors uh, on the ground, uh, some of whom were at that hospital. They say that on October 14th, uh, there were two Israeli hits very close to the hospital. They also said that they received a phone call the day afterwards from the IDF telling them that they should evacuate from that hospital. Uh, they're using that to bolster their argument and their conviction that this was indeed an Israeli strike. They point to the fact that they uh, do not believe that a rocket attack would cause that kind of damage, would cause that kind of death toll. Um, they also have been describing just gruesome scenes, Aaron, some of which we have seen borne out in videos of the horror of the aftermath of this explosion, body parts strewn across the entire area. They said that basically people had been uh, taking shelter in the Al-Ahli uh, Baptist Hospital, that they had been, many of them, sleeping in tents in the garden of the hospital. This is a common thing during times of heavy bombardment in Gaza. People flock to hotels, people flock to hospitals. They believe that those areas are largely safe. Uh, they set up camp there. They wait for the situation to improve. Obviously, in this case, uh, we're seeing now hundreds dead. It is still unclear what the exact number is. The efforts to try to sift through the wreckage and identify how many people have been killed continues. But at this stage, as you say, the focus now is very much on the reaction 
on the fact that for many Arab states, this is now becoming a national security issue in their own countries because people are horrified, people are angry, people want revenge, and they are taking to the streets. And we have seen protests erupting all throughout the region. So this becomes a real challenge as well, even for allies of the U.S. I think that's partly why you have seen Arab leaders cancel this meeting with President Biden, because it just becomes too difficult for them to be seen as tacitly endorsing anything coming from the U.S. or Israel in this very, very contentious moment. One other thing to mention, the U.N. Secretary General has come out and said, listen, there needs to be an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. So far, no indication that that might be in the works. We have been hearing heavy strikes continuing throughout the morning, Aaron. All right, Clarissa, thank you very much. And as you point out, uh, that King Abdullah of Jordan, also someone who's close to President Biden, longtime relationship, a, a friendship. And the fact that he is still, because of what is happening at home and in this region, unable to have that meeting, these are significant things. Our Caitlin Collins is here in Tel Aviv uh, with President Biden, who will be speaking soon. And Caitlin, we heard uh, Biden appearing to agree with Israel, right? And that they were not responsible for the deadly hospital explosion is significant. It seemed he went further than his national security officials. So, so how significant is this, what he exactly said? Well, he went further even than what he said before departing the United States to head here to Tel Aviv. And he had just arrived here. He had not been on the ground for very long, Aaron. He had greeted the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the airport. And then he made his way here to this hotel that I'm standing in now where he is having his slate of meetings, the very few meetings that he is having while he's on the ground here in Israel. And it was one of the first comments that he made. And it was incredibly significant because the president took the time as he was seated one on one there with Netanyahu, with their national security officials by their sides to say that based on what he has seen, he said it was the other team. And he specifically said, not you, referring to the Israeli prime minister. Of course, that is greatly significant because he is endorsing Israel's denials that they are responsible responsible for the explosion that happened at that hospital in Gaza. Now, Israel has denied it. You've seen Palestinian authorities blame uh, the Israeli Israel defense forces and to say that they are to blame. Israel has strongly denied that. So it is significant to see the president coming out and saying that, endorsing those denials. But what I'll note is that he said the other team, which, of course, raised a lot of questions of what specifically he was referring to. We asked him those questions. I was in the room as he was having this meeting with the prime minister. He did not clarify, of course, that. And the other big question is what it is that he has seen that has led him to endorse these denials by Israel, that it was them who was responsible for that explosion at that hospital in Gaza. He had only just been on the ground here for a very short period of time. He had not had any meetings behind closed doors with Israeli government officials, but he had been on Air Force One traveling with his own national security team, his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who was in the room. So that is still a key question here. And of course, uh, that is going to be something that is hanging over this entire trip as the president is moving forward. A trip, Aaron, that I should note is looking a lot different than what the White House thought it was going to even just 24 hours ago. I mean, he'll be here. He's about to have a meeting shortly with the newly formed wartime cabinet. And then he's going to be meeting with the families of victims, the families of hostages, first responders who were there on that horrific day here in Israel as that attack unfolded.
Of course, he is not going to be going on to Jordan to have meetings with those other world officials. That is incredibly significant and certainly a setback to what the president was hoping to do. But key questions still remain of what the deliverables of this trip will look like. Is it humanitarian aid? Is there uh, um, a certain as they are trying to ward off this turning into a bigger regional conflict? Those are the key questions that still remain here this morning. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you very much. Uh, with all of those details and obviously so many questions about what this meeting uh, may or may have. Phil and Poppy, as Caitlin says, it is not what they expected. It is not what they wanted, but it is what they have. Yeah, it is a very different moment to Caitlin's point than it was 24 hours ago. A lot of very significant and consequential issues for the president to address both behind the scenes with the prime minister and his war cabinet, but also what you're seeing on the screen. These are live pictures in Tunisia. That is a very, very real escalation of protests across the region, all as the president is on the ground in Israel. We're going to continue with our team coverage. Up next, we're also going to dig deeper into what the IDF claims caused the Gaza hospital explosion, plus who they're blaming it on. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Live pictures of smoke rising over Gaza. Smoke rising over Gaza is now every single day. It puts the hospital strike in context. Such horror happening, perhaps unavoidable in a situation that it, where there is such bombardment coming in and the efforts of uh, bombardment coming out all day, every single day. The thuds uh, felt all around, even here. And just hours ago, a spokesperson for the Israeli military held a news conference. So they are putting out putting out their cards on the table, blaming the Gaza hospital explosion on the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. It is uh, different than Hamas. It is, though, however, the second largest armed group in Gaza. The explosion of the Hali al-Mahadani hospital in Gaza was caused by an Islamic Jihad rocket that was misfired. According to our intelligence, Hamas checked the reports, understood it was an Islamic Jihad rocket, that had misfired and decided to launch a global media campaign to hide what really happened. All right, a news conference, 
all of this information. You were there in that room. Uh, they feel the need to, to make their case and, and point by point. What did you hear? Yeah, they certainly do feel the need to make their case. I think they would be doing it regardless of whether or not President Biden was arriving here today. But certainly there was a greater sense of urgency because yeah. the president of the United States was arriving after this horrific bombing of this hospital in which hundreds of civilians are believed uh, to have died. And they're making their case in a number of ways. They are providing a lot of uh, intelligence that they say that they have gathered, both conversations with Hamas militants uh, and also pointing to uh, some of the facts on the ground. One of the key pieces of information that they said that bolsters their claim is this idea that there was no crater uh, on the ground. But amid all of this, we have yeah. already watched as the Arab world in particular has already yeah. made up their minds about the situation. Um, and that is something that Israel is certainly fighting against. And they're fighting against it because they have had a credibility problem in the past, including yes. uh, with the killing of the journalist Shireen Abu Akleh last year when the Israeli government initially claimed that it was Palestinian militants and not Israeli soldiers who fired on her. I asked yeah. the IDF spokesman that question. Among other incidents, the Israeli government initially claimed that it was armed Palestinian militants who killed the journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, which we know is not true. So why should the world trust you now? Because of uh, the importance of credibility, we took the time, it took us more than five hours. We wanted to double check everything, make sure we're credible. Again, we wanted to double check everything, make sure we're credible, opposed to the other events that you mentioned. And so he says that we're taking the time to be credible this time, right? Acknowledging almost that they have had a credibility yes, problem in the yes, past. Acknowledging yeah. that there are times where they have not been credible, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, although, and, and I understand time is of the essence, but five to six hours, I know they're saying that's a lot of time. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure how to look at that, but it's not a lot of time and, in some and sense, isn't it? With yeah. the journalists who were killed in southern Lebanon, we still don't have an official IDF response to that, for example, no. uh, amid allegations that it was because of IDF shelling on them. So they clearly pick and choose their moments when they want to put out fulsome information an and they want to make their case. Absolutely. And Phil and Poppy, I will say one other thing, because Jeremy has all this, too. What they show here is what we already know, but I think it's worth emphasizing to viewers, um, that they have complete surveillance of this area, drone surveillance constantly, right? And they actually put out um, a trajectory analysis of every rocket that was coming in and out of that time, you say, how could they know that? Well, they do know that because that's how they activate their Iron Dome on such specific small locations, right? Because they do know rocket trajectories and angles, and they do know that, that, that analysis. So I think it is significant just to say they are putting this level of granular detail out to support their claim, Poppy and Phil. Okay. Thank you so much, Aaron. And to exactly the point that Aaron just made, let's bring in CNN military analyst, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, also with us, our global affairs analyst, Kim Dozier. Talk a little bit more about what Aaron just laid out and if that can be definitive proof yeah. or if it only goes so far. It only goes so far, first of all, and Aaron is learning all kinds of new things out there, but this is what's called a point of origin chart. Every commander has one of these and their artillery groups has it. And as Aaron said, this is how the Iron Dome works. The radar initially gets where the point of origin of a rocket occurs. Mm -hmm. They use that, first of all, to conduct strikes on that area. You want to kill the enemy. But it also shows you the trajectory of the round because that's how the Iron, the Iron Dome works. You pick up this trajectory somewhere along its route to knock down the rocket. In this case, they've got several rockets coming out of this area on several trajectories. One of them goes right out of the hospital, this is, or right over the hospital. This is pretty good evidence in and of itself, but it's not enough. You also have to take a look at the craters that they, that they provided. 
Uh, and that's Israel. what the Israelis pointed to right away. Exactly. The first one is the point of origin and the point of aim. This one is their crater analysis. It hit in this parking lot. This is the hospital right here. And you saw the burned cars. There were no craters in that area. That means either the, the rocket exploded over an area or it hit a car, set it on fire, and the blast had some effects. And just seeing some of the films that were shown this morning, there were pockmarks on the side of the building. That's an indicator of a blast of a rocket, but there's no craters there. And the IDF to try and make their point is saying, hey, this is what a bomb crater looks like here and here that are coming off of aircraft. The other thing that's important is, what I, what I don't think they did say is, if, if the IDF is aiming for a hospital with their precision rounds, they're gonna hit it. They're not gonna hit the parking lot, they are gonna hit the building. And what you've seen inside of the building uh, with, or, and outside the building, again, this is, this is the site of the original fire. So the round probably hit somewhere in here. And then what the IDF shows is the hospital here with the fire in the parking lot. So all of these things are pretty good proof of where the round went. Kim, we also know the attribution, at least according to the IDF and what they're claiming right now, is Islamic Jihad, not Hamas. For people who aren't as familiar with, uh, I think, the various groups that are in the region in Gaza, who is Islamic Jihad? What's their relationship like with Hamas? I mean, Hamas is the governing body. It's the governing party. Islamic Jihad is one of the militant groups that uh, works alongside it, has similar goals, and Hamas allows it to flourish because um, it's got a following within Gaza. So... The problem is, to use President Biden's terms, um, you believe your team, and Islamic Jihad is um, on the team. So, you know, there's a call for an international investigation into this, but if Hamas knows that this was an Islamic Jihad rocket and the audio that the Israeli Defense Forces released seems to indicate that, there's no way they're going to let investigators in there on the ground to prove them wrong and to prove that it wasn't an Israeli munition. So does that mean, General, that the world may never get definitive proof? What would definitive proof look like? You're, you're not going to get it, uh, Poppy, because as, as Kimberly just said, you have to do crater analysis. You have to pick off the pieces of the rocket. Uh, that are still in the area. I mean, there, there are remains of the rockets, little shards, and you can tell from that crater analysis, from that rocket analysis, where the round actually came from and what kind it was. But unless you get in the area, you can't pick that final piece of forensic evidence. And as Kim said, you know, to quote Mark Twain, a lie is going to get around the world before the truth gets its boots on. And that's what's happening in the information age when you have so much stuff going out online. You can't walk this back based on what we saw in the riots last night. But it's ongoing right now. Yeah. We just yeah. showed live pictures yeah. out of Tunisia. I've been in this situation in combat where allegedly we hit a mosque or a building, and you can never counter the bias in the area. And these are the live pictures. Kim, you know, to this point, uh, the decision by the president to come out during that spray with Benjamin Netanyahu before their bilateral meeting, which is ongoing right now. Um, it was notable because 10 hours prior, he put out a statement that did not have a definitive conclusion on responsibility. His team briefed well aboard Air Force One during this flight and did not draw a definitive conclusion, only said that this is what the Israelis were saying. The president, in his own way, and also while reading his notes, 
drew a definitive conclusion, said it was the other team, looked at Pre uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, said it was not you. What do you think happened in those 10 hours? I think they've seen a lot of the Israeli intelligence and they believe it. They believe that this was an intercept. And think from the Israeli point of view, to put out that audio intercept is letting everyone who was on that call or radio transmission know um, we can hear you. We're listening to all of this and they're going to change their methods of communication. So that was a big risk. Biden seems to have believed it. But I also think he, he used, yes, his typical folksy language. Mm -hmm. But it's curious. There won't be a, a bite where the American president is saying, I believe the Palestinians did this, not the Israelis. It's other team. Um, so, yes, he lined up with um, Netanyahu, but I'm surely not as in as fulsome a way as the Israeli prime minister would have liked. You, you can bet that he will be asked for uh, more on that and more clear yeah. statements on that. Thank you. This was so helpful, General Hortling and Kim. Appreciate it very much. As we were just showing you these live protests spreading around the Arab world in the wake of that blast, they killed hundreds at that hospital in Gaza. This is Biden has arrived in Israel. We'll take you live next to Amman, Jordan, with reaction on the ground there. Stay with us. President Biden is in Israel this morning after the deadly blast in Gaza hit a hospital, killing hundreds. This is according to Palestinian officials. We do know a lot of people are dead, hundreds of people. No yet firm number, but it is heartbreaking and horrible. And there was horrible injury and death after, after that blast. And so many of those people, people who had sought refuge. That is the reality of the situation. And that blast is also sparking mass anti-Israel protests across the Middle East uh, today, uh, starting last night in Jordan and continuing through the day today. In Jordan, local security forces were seen using tear gas to try to disperse huge crowds near the Israeli embassy in Amman. And I want to go to our own uh, Neda Bashir, who is in Amman, Jordan, with more. And, and then I want to just, you know, the context here, of course, is that the president of the United States was going to be going there, right? And it gives people the context of what happened when this hospital strike occurred, that immediate outpouring in the street uh, in a city where the president was going to go, uh, the anger is is has boiled over. Absolutely. We have seen that translated to not only the popular front, but also the diplomatic front. As you mentioned, that summit between the leaders of Egypt, the Palestinian Authority, Jordan, and of course, U.S. President Joe Biden has been called off. We heard uh, from the foreign minister of Jordan yesterday saying that their singular focus in holding this summit was to bring an end to the war, to bring some respite and relief to the Palestinian people inside the besieged Gaza Strip. And he doesn't feel, the Jordanian authorities do not feel that their international partners are on the same page when it comes to that focus at this current point in time. And of course, we cannot ignore the fact that this has come in response to that horrifying attack on the Al-Ahli hospital inside the Gaza Strip. We know that three days of mourning have been declared. This is being observed across the Middle East. The flag behind me is at half-mast uh, in response to that attack. And of course, as you mentioned, we have seen huge protests taking place across the region. In fact, these protests have been going on from the outset of the war, particularly here in Amman, where almost half of the population are either Palestinian 
or of Palestinian descent across Jordan, uh, rather. So this is a central cause for many people in this country. We saw huge crowds gathering yesterday towards the Israeli embassy, some protesters attempting to storm the Israeli embassy. And we are expecting to see even further protests today, including uh, one protest which is said to be scheduled outside the U.S. embassy. Of course, the U.S. being seen as a key ally here to Israel and in some sense complicit in what many feel are these horrific airstrikes happening inside the Gaza Strip. But I think it is really important to underscore here uh, the outrage that we have seen amongst uh, people across the Middle East. I think your uh, military analyst just before described this as a bias that is felt in the Middle East. But I have to say what we've seen from people that we've been speaking to is a sense of horror and outrage at the civilian toll that we've seen inside the Gaza Strip, an area of land that is under blockade, is facing a complete siege at this current point in time. And I think it is also important to underscore that while Hamas, and of course in the eyes of many Arab leaders, has placed the blame squarely on Israel, we know that Israel has categorically denied any involvement in this attack, placing the blame on Islamic Jihad in Gaza for a failed rocket launch, according to the IDF. But I think it's important to underscore that over the course of more than a week now, what we have seen is civilian areas inside Gaza repeatedly coming under attack by Israeli airstrikes. That's not only according to Hamas and Palestinian authorities on the ground in Gaza, but that's according to international rights groups, according to people we've been speaking to, hospitals, medical facilities, schools, even evacuation routes that are said to be safe for people to flee to southern Gaza. So you can imagine across the Middle East the outrage uh, that is felt. And of course, we are expecting more protests across the region, as you mentioned. Uh, some are going on as we speak in Tunisia. We will continue to see people taking to the streets, and this will only intensify as Israel's aerial bombardment of Gaza continues. Absolutely, an aerial bombardment that we know will continue. Netta, that is the reality that we are living right now. And I want to go to Nick Robertson, uh, who is in live in Starod, Israel, where you have been since the very beginning, Nick. So obviously the White House now downplaying expectations for the trip, but it is clear they had hoped for much more. That's the reality. They thought they were getting to talk to uh, Arab states as well as uh, the Jewish state, but that's not happening. What do you think the the number one thing is that Biden has to accomplish today, given the reality of the changed schedule of this trip. Yeah, I think with the uh, all the deaths at the hospital overnight, the stakes obviously went up almost when President Biden was in the air. And the fact that his meetings with uh, the Egyptian president, uh, the King of Jordan, the Palestinian Authority president, uh, that, that was cancelled uh, is, is clearly uh, un undermines some of what he wanted to achieve. But the big thing that he wanted to achieve was to send a very clear and strong message, as he has since the beginning, that the United States stands with Israel. And that was a message that was designed to signal to uh, Israel's enemies in the region, be they Hezbollah, be they, be they uh, elements in Syria, be they the Iranian leadership, wherever they are, to stay out of the fight. That's been the verbal message, and that was, that was the importance of his message here. And I think because of what happened in the hospital last night and the perceptions around it, that message is, is needed even more loudly. And that's the one that President Biden has delivered here very publicly, standing with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, there's another sort of important part of the context, I think, when we consider the reaction. 
the reaction on the streets around the region um, is, is a worry for Israel, but it will be a worry for the King of Jordan. It will be a worry for the President of Egypt because uh, uh, outrage uh, uh, support of Palestinians on their streets is, is destabilizing for them. And these are both two countries, two leaders, who depend very heavily on financial support from the United States. And in a way, uh, their, their populations know that, but ignore it, but it puts them in a, in a difficult position as well. When, when they have to choose the steps that they take, there is the reaction on the, on the street in those countries, and then there is what the political leaders do. And I think the bottom line that we've heard signaled from President Biden today is last night was horrendous, horrific. Everyone knows it. The pictures are just awful. However, um, it changes little in the calculus. It, uh, Israel's enemies must hold back, and I think it still leaves a door open for what Israel wants to do in terms of taking on Hamas, and that's a critical point, which may very well be, it seems to me, that the possibility of a ground incursion remains an open option. It definitely remains an open option. We see that border and everything along it amassed and ready, uh, ready position. Nick, what are you seeing on that front? And, and, and I do want everyone to understand, you know, your location is so close to the border. Um, when these rockets come in, the house next to the one where you are was actually even hit by one of those rockets. So that's the proximity with which you are observing this. What are you seeing? Yeah, this town, for example, normal population, 40,000 down to about 4,000, according to local officials. Um, over the past, I would say, yeah. 18 plus hours when there have been incoming uh, rockets from Gaza and there were some coming incoming in the last hour, um, we're not seeing any intercepts, any Iron Dome intercepts. And it, in the past, we were. Uh, we are hearing the sirens and that does give the population of about 4,000 people here. Uh, literally about six or seven seconds to take shelter. Uh, almost all houses here have rooms for shelter. There are shelters on the streets, but the streets are deserted, which I think tells you uh, the situation here. People are very aware of the threat that comes from Gaza. It is still an active and real threat. And, and that, of course, gives support and impetus to Israel's desire to go into Gaza and, and take out the leadership of Hamas. At the same time, we're, we're continuing to hear heavy drone activity, continuing to hear uh, Israeli jet activity and missile strikes on Gaza. Um, so, you know, again, going back to the big picture, as terrible as last night was, um, dependent on the writ large Arab street reaction and the ability of leaders in those countries to, to, to maintain stability at home, it seems, and also dependent on Iran's leadership's reaction, it seems that actually in the broader calculus of what's going to happen, very little has, has actually changed. As horrible as it was, events have yet to fully play out, so we don't have a whole picture. But from statements so far, that's what it looks like. Certainly does. And of course, the IDF insists, and I'm talking to a former general last night, that, that this will not affect their planning for what they're doing in Gaza. Uh, we shall see. Nick Robertson, thank you very much. And the White House, of course, already downplaying expectations for President Biden's visit to Israel, which has been further complicated, uh, at the least, by that bombing of a hospital in Gaza. Any moment now, President Biden will speak again. We'll be back.
minute now, President Biden is set to deliver remarks in Tel Aviv. His visit to Israel comes amid deepening tension in the region after a blast that killed hundreds of innocent civilians at a hospital in Gaza. This morning, President Biden seeming to agree with the IDF's assessment, the White House already downplaying expectations for the president's war zone visit. Let's get straight to our senior White House correspondent, Kayla Tausche. The big question is what changed from when Biden left Washington, when the White House said they were continuing to investigate who launched what caused this blast, to what Biden saying with Netanyahu saying uh, it appears it was done by the other team. Do we know if the president got more intelligence or another briefing on the plane? We don't, but we assume, Poppy, that on a very lengthy multi-hour flight where he directed his national security team to find new information, that perhaps they did obtain new information. We just don't know what that is. And we've reached out to the White House and the National Security Council to figure out exactly what did transpire overnight and whether anything informed the president's significant shift when he was sitting next to Prime Minister Netanyahu this morning, uh, where he said that he believed that uh, that the hospital strike was carried out by the other team and it essentially was backing Israel's assessment of who was responsible for that attack. That is a significant departure from where the president was just before his departure. Uh, even though the public statements did say that uh, they did not know who was behind the attack, I'm told by my own sources that when advisors briefed the president before his departure that the U.S. did not even draw a conclusion behind closed doors. And at that time, we're not even certain that they would be able to draw one in a timely manner. That being said, you know, they are certainly downplaying the expectations for any deliverables on this visit with a critical cancellation of that summit in Jordan. Uh, officials telling me that if the president is able to show his support and solidarity and the solidarity of the broader United States with Israel and also send a message of deterrence to other players in the region not to open up a second front in this war, that that would be seen as a success, but certainly um, there are risks associated with this trip. It is an incredibly volatile environment, and the U.S. is inserting itself in this conflict at a time of asymmetric information, and we're still learning more about what exactly that information is that's leading to some of these shifting assessments. Also, the fact that he will no longer be speaking, uh, he will no longer be going to Amman, he will no longer also be speaking with President El-Sisi of Egypt. We know how much President Biden values face-to-face -face meetings and communication. I understand they're going to talk on the phone on the president's trip home. What does the White House hope to accomplish? And what's your reporting on how disappointed they are that these in-person meetings aren't happening? Well, certainly they knew that it was always a possibility that something that was fairly hastily assembled could be just as hastily disassembled, given how much was happening in the region. But it is very fair to say, Poppy, that it was that forum in Jordan and the face-to-face -face with those leaders where some of those key conversations about humanitarian passage and humanitarian aid were going to be had. And without that face-to-face -face conversation, we know the president believes that phone and Zoom are no stand-ins for that personal diplomacy. It's hard to see, and officials say that it's also hard to see how uh, anything concrete comes out of it, at least within this very short time frame. Yeah. Kayla Tash at the White House, thank you very much. Well, this morning we're hearing from a doctor who was in the hospital at the time of the blast and his harrowing experience. I was operating. I finished, just finished one surgery, 
and uh, suddenly we heard a big explosion. We thought it's outside the hospital because we never thought that they would bomb the hospital. Uh, the people run in the orbiting theater, screaming, uh, help us, help us. Many patients, many people are injured, many people are dead. Joining us now to discuss is Dr. Mustafa Barghouti. He's a Palestinian legislator and the president of the Palestinian National Initiative, which is a political party. So we appreciate your time. I want to start with where you are in Ramallah. We've seen protests throughout the region, uh, certainly a volatile moment in the wake uh, of the explosion at the hospital. How would you describe how people are feeling, how they're reacting right now where you are? People are very angry, and of course, nothing can be more embarrassing than a deliberate war crime uh, of an Israeli airstrike killing civilians and killing innocent children and, and, and women. 500 victims and uh, hundreds of other injured who could die at any moment. And let me tell you that what we, what we believe is that, and we urge you to remember that the Israeli military lied to the world on many occasions before changing their stories many times. A very good example of that was their denial of killing Shiri, the American Palestinian journalist Shirin Abu Akli, and changing their story four times. Today, they already changed their story three times, but the world doesn't notice that. The first time they said that they striked the hospital because there were militants, Hamas militants hiding there. Then they said that Hamas is taking Palestinian civilians as, 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 uh, as shields, human shields. Then they said that it was jihad and it was a rocket of jihad. I do not believe in any of this nonsense because there are many facts here. One fact is that 57 strikes have already taken place against health facilities, hospitals and clinics in Gaza. This cannot be denied. Another fact is that they warned the hospital, the Baptist hospital run by the Anglican Church. They warned them that they should leave and evacuate. And they couldn't do that because they couldn't leave their patients to die. They also attacked and killed no less than 18 Palestinian first aid providers. They also destroyed 23 ambulances with their right. airstrikes. And most important, the Israeli airstrikes have already demolished 70,000 houses whole neighborhoods were erased to, to earth. I cannot understand how President Biden, the head of the most powerful country in the world, continues to accept lies from Netanyahu. So, sir, just to, I understand, I understand to be your incorrect. point. I, I understand what you're saying. I think what, uh, what we have seen from the IDF, and to be very clear, my colleague Jeremy Diamond asked the IDF at the press conference uh, about the lies and changing stories as it relates uh, to uh, the journalists that you referred to, what you're saying are all contextual pieces. What the IDF is laying out, and I think what the president was responding to today, was specific signals intelligence, specific uh, tracking of rockets. They have documented what they have. I guess my question to you would be, what have you seen that explicitly shows that it was an airstrike beyond the kind of what's happened around it? The of course, I wasn't there, but I have the people, my people are there, and they told me that the type of airstrike they've seen on this hospital is exactly the same airstrike they've seen in other places. One more fact, in addition to what I said before. One more fact is the type of explosion that happened after the Israeli airstrike is a type that no Palestinian rocket could ever have. This wide, huge kind of explosion, killing 500 people in one minute, 
This never happened by Palestinian rockets. And anything, any, any invest. And what we ask for, okay, let's have an international independent commission investigating. To that, that point, do you think the, an international criminal, independent commission criminal, would be allowed no, to no, investigate? No, like, the, would that be something that international Israel, investigators would be allowed on the ground I, to I'm investigate? Sure. No, record my what I say to you. Israel would never allow an international investigation, like they never allowed an investigation of the killing of Shirin Abu Akli. And they, because you can't, you can't have the criminal investigate himself or herself. And the big question here, why Mr. Biden does not call for a ceasefire? How many more Palestinians should be killed before we can get ceasefire? 3,200 Palestinians have been killed so far. Three war crimes are being committed in front of the world. Ethnic cleansing, genocide. Can I ask and you, sir? And what what would you? I understand what you're saying about the ceasefire, and President and, Biden and has been. One, one no, but just point. real quick, I, I just want to know: he is going to speak later today, and it is very clear that the United States and from the president that they are not going to call for a ceasefire. And I understand your perspective on that. What could the president say outside of that, from a regional perspective, uh, that would signify to you a, a positive step forward? You know, with all due respect, I see that President Biden cares only about one, one thing, which is to be re-elected. And that's why he's taking the side of Israel. He's believing Israeli lies, like the lie of decapitation of children, which was never verified, or the lie of raping women, which was never verified. And they continue. And now this lie that Palestinians killed themselves. This is totally unacceptable. He should call for ceasefire immediately to save Palestinian and Israeli lives. At least he should care about the lives of Israeli prisoners who are being bombarded with Israeli airstrikes now. 22 of them have already been killed by Netanyahu's airstrikes on Gaza. This should stop. How many thousands and thousands and thousands of people should be killed, and especially right. children and civilians, before Israel accepts a ceasefire? Mr. Biden has a responsibility, and his responsibility now is immediate ceasefire. And let me remind him of the lies that were told about Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction. After years, everybody admitted it was a big lie that justified the killing of one million Iraqis. Enough is enough. We don't, we don't need another atrocity here. We don't right. need ethnic cleansing of Palestinians to Egypt. I would note that it was the uh, Jordanian summit in Amman the president wanted to meet. That was canceled. Uh, certainly, you have a very different perspective from what we've heard from the IDF, but the president has said as well. We do appreciate your time, uh, Dr. Mustafa Bargodi. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, obviously, as you saw from that conversation, significant questions. President Biden is in Israel after that blast at the hospital killed hundreds of people. He will speak soon. Will he speak about any additional intelligence he may have seen uh, about that blast? Much more ahead. You'll see the president live right here. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Okay, we're waiting to hear from President Biden once again this morning. He's going to make some remarks again in Tel Aviv after we saw him speaking with Prime Minister Netanyahu. We'll bring that to you live as soon as it begins. As we, as we wait, let's bring in our 
CNN Chief International Anchor Christian Amanpour and CNN Political and National Security Analyst David Sanger, also White House Correspondent National Security Correspondent for The New York Times. Christian, let me begin with you. You just heard that conversation, I believe, that Phil had. Uh, and you see the live pictures around the world from Tunisia to Oman, Jordan, uh, and many, many, many who do not believe in the Arab world, who do not believe what Israel is saying, that this was not their strike on the hospital. We're looking at these live pictures. And now President Biden is there in the middle of all of this with a canceled summit that was hastily arranged in Amman, Jordan. What comes out of today and what can the president say, if anything, to calm tension? Well, Poppy, Phil, this is truly considered by just about everybody an unmitigated disaster that the president has walked into this terrible, terrible catastrophe that's unfolding in Gaza. And as you heard from Mustafa Barghouti, who is a moderate Palestinian who has tried all his life to bring the factions together, um, there is their narrative based on context and what's happened before. And they do not believe, and the street does not believe, no matter how much the IDF says it's done its five-hour investigation, it's just not believed around the world. And that is what is mattering right now. That is the narrative. It's not believed. And I can tell you that the Israeli defense minister himself said last week when imposing a siege on Gaza, which the international community says is uh, against international law, uh, he also said, we remove, I have ordered... Christian, let me, let me interrupt you, and I apologize. I apologize for the interruption. I, I want to tell people what they're watching on the screen right now. It is uh, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is speaking. This is before a meeting between President Biden, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and Prime Minister Netanyahu's war cabinet that was put together in the wake of the October 7th attacks. We're going to listen to both of them who they are expected to give uh, remarks. Prime Minister Netanyahu is speaking now. Israel will do everything it can to keep civilians out of harm's way. We have asked them and will continue to ask them to move to safer areas. We'll continue to work with you, Mr. President, to assure that the minimal requirements are met and we'll continue to work together to get our hostages out. Mr. President, the road to victory will be long and hard, but united in purpose and with a deep sense of justice and the unbreakable spirit of our soldiers and our people, Israel will prevail. Thank you, Mr. President. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Prime Minister. In the wake of Hamas's uh, appalling terrorist assault, it was brutal, inhumane, almost beyond belief what they did. This cabinet came together and uh, standing strong, standing united, and, uh, and I want you to know you're not alone. You are not alone. As I emphasized earlier, we will continue to have Israel's back as you work to defend your people. We'll continue to work with you and partners across the region to prevent more tragedy to innocent civilians. 75 years ago, your founders declared that this nation would be one based, quote, based on freedom, justice, and peace. Based on freedom, justice, and peace. The United States stands with you in defense of that freedom, in pursuit of that justice, and in support of that peace. Today, tomorrow, and always, we promise you.
I don't give up. Nothing changes. I want it. Okay, you just heard the end of Netanyahu's remarks here on what President Biden said. With us again, Christian Amanpour, David Sanger, Aaron Burnett in Tel Aviv, along with Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, let me go to you first. We missed the beginning half of what we heard from Netanyahu. Talk to us about the significance of what was just said and what they're going into now. Well, you heard what Prime Minister Netanyahu was referring to there. He was talking about civilians in Gaza, talking about those warnings that have been issued by the IDF to leave northern Gaza, to go to southern Gaza. Of course, that set off that chaotic scramble from so many people and civilians who felt like they had nowhere really to go. But obviously, that is a really big concern that President Biden was expected to raise while here, which is the humanitarian aspect of this. The fact that no humanitarian aid has been able to get into Gaza, that has been something that Secretary Blinken and his marathon trips that he's been making here in the Middle East over the last several days and now back here in Israel, in Tel Aviv, with President Biden is making. I should note, they're just next door to where I am standing Mm -hmm. here speaking to you right now, meeting with that entire wartime cabinet. Next, the president is going to go and hear from first responders, from victims' families, from the families, the relatives of hostages. But there are going to be key questions between what he and the prime minister have discussed. Humanitarian aid poppy is right at the top of that. So we'll see if there are any announcements when the president comes and speaks in this room behind me. That's what's next on his agenda. But the White House said President Biden was walking into this with key questions, not just about humanitarian aid, but also what Israel's goal is here. If they do go into Gaza with that expected ground incursion, what are their objectives? What is that going to look like? And those are very critical questions, of course, that the U.S. has amplified by what has happened and by the fact that those in-person meetings in Jordan have now been canceled and now turned into phone calls, which, of course, is not the same, certainly not for President Biden, who values face-to-face meetings Mm -hmm. as actually going in person as he had initially planned to do. Yeah, it's, it's such a critical point. David Sanger, I want to I bring you in here because we saw there was the, a, a smaller face-to-face meeting between the president and Prime Minister Netanyahu. This is now a larger, more expanded group with that uh, war cabinet kind of unity coming together that happened in the days after the October 7th attacks. Uh, to Kaylin's point, you heard the prime minister talking about uh, civilians, about uh, the people of Gaza, which is a critical piece of this for the U.S. side of things. What are the expectations in this meeting that's happening right now? Well, I think there are probably two or three things, Phil. The first is what you heard about uh, the effort to try to get the Israelis to open up more humanitarian corridors, carve off areas where there would not be um, attacks, that would be areas for safe passage and so forth. But I think the second thing you saw that really fascinated me as you as we watch this is the dynamic now that you see Prime Minister Netanyahu dealing with a unity cabinet. So directly across from uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken and the National Security Advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, you saw Benny Gantz, who, of course, used to be the military chief of staff, uh, ran against Netanyahu in uh, 2019, uh, was defense minister at some point, has had a lot of experience in, in Gaza and is considered a more moderate figure. I think the, what you're seeing the administration do is try to keep American officials in Israel constantly. That's why you've seen Secretary Blinken go back twice. You saw Lloyd Austin there. Now you see the president. And they're just trying to slow the Israelis down and say, let's think about what it is you're trying to accomplish. 
how you can minimize the civilian casualties. I think the hospital event, even if the Israelis are right and that the, uh, it was an Iran uh, uh, rocket from Hamas's side, I think that event will probably underscore for them the need to uh, keep these casualties as low as they can. And my guess is that the administration is trying to move them to more targeted uh, work against specific Hamas leaders rather than a full-scale ground invasion. Uh, the issue with that is how Hamas uses the Palestinian civilians, David, in, in shield and brings them to where That's they right. know they will be targeted. Christian, back to you. I apologize we had to interrupt to listen to Netanyahu and the president there. But you had called this, as we were speaking before, an unmitigated disaster, essentially, for the president. How does President Biden leave Israel? What is the well, possible? I mean, Poppy, Poppy in, in, in my memory, a president has not been cancelled by Arab leaders. This is, this is an unprecedented situation. And it is coming at a massive, massive, massive uh, importance to talk to those Arab leaders in order to be shown to be actually trying to figure out how to de-escalate. De-escalation does not look very, very likely right now. And the most the president can hope to come away with, according to certain Arab leaders and those who are looking at mm -hmm. the humanitarian suggestion here, is to get an, an agreement from Israel to allow humanitarian aid in. CNN reported, and it's been shown on our air, that there continue to be airstrikes in the south, including around Rafah. I spoke to the Egyptian foreign minister yesterday with all eyes on Egypt, because that is where, as he told me, dozens, if not hundreds, of trucks, convoys are waiting with fuel and water and food to come in for the people there. And it hasn't been able to happen because there have been strikes around Rafa as well, complicating so much of this. And you, I was about to tell you that yeah. the Israeli uh, Minister of Defense told his troops, and if you like, I'll read it to you, I have released all the restraints that we, uh, that, that, that we put on uh, the IDF. And I think this is, you know, a, a very, very important comment. This, of course, was last week. Mm -hmm. But the idea of... The United States trying to ensure that, as the Israelis call this, a full-scale war, ensure that international law and the respect of civilians um, is paramount. It, it, it's very key right now, and you can see it playing out all over on the streets. And that, in the end, is what matters. The pressure it puts on people like the Hezbollah or Iran or whoever to take matters into their own hands. Christian, just to follow up on that, what I was also going to ask you is how likely do you believe it is that President Biden leaves Israel without achieving the humanitarian objectives they, they went to the region with and, it, and leaving with a more angered Arab world after this hospital explosion. Well, I mean, look, there's a very inflamed Arab world, a very inflamed Gaza, a very inflamed other Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. And I think that that is going to continue and play out for several days. We have witnessed this. We've reported this for decades now. I've been reporting this since the 90s, all through the 2000s. This is much, much worse than it has been before, both in the attacks on Israel, for sure, and in the repercussions in Gaza. And it is uncharted territory population. They haven't told us what the end game is in Gaza beyond the eradication of Hamas. This is an urban infrastructure, and whether Hamas takes people and holds them as human shields or just they live in this densely populated area, this is 
an almost impossible task. And I've spoken to very key advisors, to President, uh, rather Prime Minister um, Benjamin Netanyahu, Mark Regev, for instance, who's also been doing this for decades with uh, Bibi Netanyahu, who told me, Christian, this is not the same as what we've been through before. There will be civilian casualties. He pointed to other uh, wars that have taken place. But they try, he said, to maintain international law. But you've already seen what's going to happen throughout this kind of war. It's always like this. There are attacks in Israel, terrible attacks. There is repercussion, and it is exponentially worse on the other side. And that then creates a constant tsunami of, 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 of response and counter-response, violence and counter-violence. And in the end, nothing gets permanently solved. So the Egyptians are even saying that they hope the president would be able to talk to the peace leaders, i.e. Jordan and Egypt, and Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, to not only talk about the humanitarian situation, but to figure out at the end of this, could they restart some kind of political process to essentially solve the bigger problem, which is the Palestinian issue. Yeah, Christian, it's interesting to point out that it's not that Israeli officials are not telling anyone what their end game here is, and you've had so many great interviews on this, I, I, don't, I think they acknowledge they don't know. And, and I think that's why the unprecedented nature of this, I, I want to bring in uh, Aaron Burnett, and just to give folks some idea of, of what's happened, it's 708 here in New York, I think it's 208 in Tel Aviv, uh, where President Biden is currently meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet after a one-on-one -on -one meeting or a smaller, more restricted meeting between the two leaders as part of his agenda while in Tel Aviv. What's not on the agenda anymore is that trip to Amman to meet with Arab leaders that was canceled uh, in the wake of the explosion at a hospital that is alleged to have killed hundreds. There's now back and forth on the responsibility of the IDF uh, presenting its views and aligning with what President Biden has said, at least in his initial meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Aaron, what are you seeing on the ground right now? So, so you know, Phil, I, I, I think when, when you hear uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu talk about making sure the minimal requirements are met, uh, and, and Christiane talking about the fact that this is different, so many things fit into what is a familiar narrative for the world right now. When there are strikes on Gaza, counter strikes, a hospital or a civilian infrastructure is hit, then there are, are protests on the Arab streets, and, and people start to, they start to feel what feels like a familiar beat. But as Christiane says, this is unprecedented. And, and Phil, I, you know, I, I think it's worth saying, um, talking to people who witnessed things here, what happened is absolutely unbelievable. They describe it as an apocalypse in hell. But the reason that this is so different for Israel and that they cannot simply say, OK, and simply try to de-escalate. I mean, I, I heard last night from a man who was running for safety, walked in a bathroom and there were babies hanging from a shower curtain rod. There was a mother holding a baby in each arm and those babies were shot right between the head execution style, um, describing the rapes he saw. I mean, that is what confronts this country. And these things are, are un, unimaginable, the horrors unimaginable. But that is why they're in the position they're in, Phil, where there is no talking off a brink or talking, talking off a precedent, a, a precipice. Something must be done. That is the palpable feeling here, uh, that something must be done. And Clarissa, it is that that is that is the, the, the feeling in every conversation here and the reason this country is waiting, that they do want whatever word you want to use, revenge or payback or retribution, they demand that. 
there is a strong appetite, Aaron, for some kind of vengeance. There is no two ways about it. And the voices that you do hear uh, that are asking for an end to the cycle of violence. I interviewed the son of one of the women who was being held hostage, 74-year-old peace activist Vivian Silver. Her son, Jonathan Zygen, said, I don't believe that we can cure dead babies with more dead babies. But those voices are being drowned out by louder cries for war. And with the events at the hospital yesterday, there is now a huge amount of pressure on Arab leaders from their constituents, from angry, enraged, anguished, horrified people taking to the streets to do more. Um, we heard the Egypt, uh, sorry, rather, the Jordanian foreign minister saying, you know, in part, the reason for canceling this summit with Biden was there's no conversation to be had until the war stops. Um, and that's a growing sense that until there is some kind of a ceasefire, there can't be a proper conversation about how to deal with this situation. You've heard the U.N. Secretary General come out as well and say we need an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. So far, it's clear that that is not going to happen. We have been hearing strikes all morning uh, throughout all of yesterday, strikes happening close to the southern uh, part to the southern border with Egypt, the Rafah crossing, that that was the place where Gazans had been told essentially that they should run to for, for shelter, for refuge, that they should leave their homes in the north. So you have this essentially a complete paralysis uh, with all sides dug in, with tempers and, and, and anger and emotions flaring to unprecedented levels and the very real fear that this then spills out into a broader regional conflagration, which clearly nobody wants to see. But at this stage, it's not clear what the next steps are that would need to happen in order to prevent that, because Hezbollah is coming under pressure from its followers. Iran is coming under pressure from its followers, not to mention the Jordanians, uh, the, the, you know, the Saudis, the Emiratis, who have essentially been the most vocal proponents of, of normalized relations with Israel. The Abraham Accords are essentially out the window. And so it is a moment where one would hope to mm -hmm. hit the pause button, take stock for a moment, take a deep breath and have some clear headed thinking before making any major decisions going forward. But it's just not clear uh, that there is any real appetite for yeah. that because uh, the situation is so inflamed, Aaron. And, and I will say, obviously, we, we've been talking about this blast on the hospital. And while, of course, there is the awareness that there are many in this region uh, for whom this is an emotional issue, uh, more than a factual issue, uh, the, there, there are going to be facts. And the IDF, of course, is denied and has laid out their evidence, uh, denying that they had anything to do with it and saying that it was Islamic Jihad. I do want everyone to know here at CNN, we ourselves have been working on this to come up with what the facts are. And CNN has now geolocated the video that shows the moment of the deadly hospital blast in Gaza. And, and we're going to show it to you. As you see, the sky lights up as a large blast erupts on the hospital grounds. And it sends a huge cloud of smoke into the air. So we've been able to geolocate this and say this is exactly what you are looking at. You are looking at the hospital explosion, but we cannot independently yet verify what caused the blast. And obviously we're going to be very careful as we reach that. Right now it's the IDF's uh, detailed layout uh, that they have put out is all that's out there. But Phil and Poppy, we have geolocated this video and it is truly a stunning moment to watch because in that fire blast, of course, 
hundreds of innocent people in that instant died. Phil and Poppy. Aaron, thank you very much. And General Hortling, as we and our viewers and you look at what CNN has been able to identify in terms of the location, there's a lot still that needs to be independently verified as well. There's this audio that the Israelis have now released that they say is Hamas talking about the strike on the hospital. Let's let people listen to it. And there are subtitles on the screen. As you listen to that, and let's bring up the video again that we were just showing, what do you take from both of those? First from the video, uh, you see a very large blast, and you say, well, that's not from a rocket. But I'd suggest if that rocket failed in flight, it still has a lot of rocket fuel within it. So you have a combination of the explosion that you would normally get when a rocket impacts plus the fuel of the rocket itself. That's why when you look, you combine that with the parking lot photos and you see all the burned cars, some cars burned, some not, tells me that that fuel, the rocket fuel spilled over a large area. You see the shrapnel against the side of the hospital as opposed to it striking the hospital itself. That tells me there was a blast radius, but there was no crater. So you're beginning to see a bunch of analysis that shows what exactly this was. You add that to the video. Now, of course, that could, that could be artificial intelligence. Those could be you know, someone submitting a video like that, but it's an indicator that there was conversation online from various terror groups saying, is it ours? No, it's theirs. Where'd it come from? What happened? Uh, did, it, did they shoot down the missile? No, the missile failed. These are the kinds of things you put all that intelligence together, not only with what we saw earlier from the point of origin of a rocket that was flying over the hospital location, plus the potential for other signals intelligence and what's called Mason intelligence, the ability to gather explosions from the ground or takeoffs of rockets from the ground. And it's beginning to form a picture. But as we said before, Poppy, the Arab street already has this. They want to believe something else. I heard your interview earlier, Phil, with uh, the Palestinian leader. There is no saying that Israel is, is, is telling the truth now. It's just too late for that. But it appears to me, uh, as kind of an, an, uh, an analyst, that this was a rocket and not an explosion from, a mili- from an Israeli jet. Lieutenant Hortling, thank you very much for your expert eye on all of that. Appreciate it. Well, as we've noted, there are massive protests that have erupted in cities across the Middle East, even as allegations go back and forth on responsibility. Gaza officials, they blame Israel, while the IDF says it was the Islamic Jihad uh, in terms of the rocket itself. We are going to be live in Amman, Jordan, with reaction. That's next. President Biden is in Israel this morning after a deadly blast in Gaza hit a hospital, killing hundreds. And now this is according to Palestinian officials. Uh, we don't know yet the final death toll. Uh, it will be unbearable and it is an awful, awful event. These are heartbreaking images, injured children and families inside that hospital after the blast. And of course, those are the injured. Many of those children and families are dead. 
And the blast also now sparking mass anti-Israel protests across the region. Uh, and those started, this, the, the strike was around 7 o'clock local time. By 11 o'clock, 12 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m., there were still people out on the streets across the Middle East, including in Jordan, where local security forces were seen to use tear gas. They were trying to disperse huge crowds who had gathered near the Israeli embassy in Amman. Uh, and that is where Aneta Bashir is. She is live in Amman, Jordan with more. And Netta, obviously within hours of this strike, first Mahmoud Abbas, uh, leader of the Palestinian Authority, had pulled out of the summit, the Arab summit with President Biden. Uh, but then uh, that was followed by, of course, King Abdullah of Jordan and, and Sisi of Egypt. Um, what further reaction are you seeing in Jordan with the context that where you are standing is where the president of the United States thought he would spend his afternoon? Well, look, Karen, there has certainly been outrage and condemnation from the people across uh, Jordan. As you mentioned there, we saw those huge protests yesterday, not only in response to that horrifying attack that we saw on the Al Ahli Hospital in Gaza, but on, in response to the prospect of U.S. President Joe Biden uh, attending this summit in Jordan. We know, of course, that the U.S. Uh, has expressed its staunch solidarity uh, with Israel, unwavering support for Israel. And that has really uh, struck a sense of anger here in the Middle East, particularly as we continue to see these horrifying images of the civilian toll inside Gaza, particularly uh, following that attack on the Al Ahli Hospital. And as you can imagine, we've heard from Hamas, we've heard from the Palestinian authorities, and in the eyes of many uh, Arab leaders, the blame for this attack has been uh, placed squarely on Israel. They accuse Israel of launching an airstrike on this hospital, which, as we know, uh, did not just contain patients and medics, but also many Palestinian families who were displaced and were taking shelter in this hospital. But as we know, of course, Israel has denied uh, any responsibility or involvement in this attack. They place the blame on Islamic Jihad, who they say uh, carried out a failed rocket launch. But of course, as we've seen here, this, is take, this has really manifested in the form of huge protests. We saw those demonstrations last night in Amman going into the early hours of the morning. Hundreds gathered towards the uh, Israeli embassy, some even attempting to storm the Israeli embassy. And we are expecting to see further protests across the capital today. It's important to underscore the context here, of course, because in Jordan, around 50 percent of the population are either Palestinian or of Palestinian descent. But it's not just in Jordan where we are seeing these protests. And I should note, this isn't the first time we've seen protests. In fact, we've seen protests across the Middle East in solidarity with the Palestinian people against the killing of Palestinian civilians inside the besieged Gaza Strip since the beginning of this war across the Middle East. We saw protests in Lebanon, in Tunisia, which are ongoing uh, right now in Iraq, and of course, in the occupied West Bank in Ramallah. And this is only going to continue to intensify as we continue to see Israel's aerial bombardment of the Gaza Strip, and in particular, as we continue to see civilian areas inside Gaza coming under fire. All right, Netta, thank you very much. And to Netta's point about uh, the population of Jordan, half being Palestinian, of course, the Queen of Jordan, Queen Rania, uh, is, is Palestinian. She has spoken out forcefully uh, for Gaza civilians and been extremely critical of Israel's uh, uh, response in an early Twitter post a, a few days ago. Joining us now are Chief International Anchor Christiana Mampour and CNN Anchor Caitlin Collins. They are both with me. And Caitlin, let me just start with you because uh, you were there when Biden and, and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu gave that statement. What does Biden still think he can get done here this afternoon? 
Well, they have a lot that they would like to get done, of course. What is achievable here when it comes to the humanitarian part, given he's not going to have that in-person meeting with the leaders of Egypt and Jordan, is still a really big question. White House officials sounded very hopeful on Air Force One on the way here. They cited the work that Secretary Blinken has been doing en route. But obviously, a lot has changed. And the way the circumstances were when President Biden was taking off from Joint Base Andrews and outside of Washington is not what the White House had hoped to be the dynamic. This was already a really risky, challenging, complicated visit for President Biden. The White House has not denied that. They recognize that. And it was made even more so by what happened at this hospital in Gaza. And I should note, Aaron, that in the room where President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu are right now, which is just next door to where I'm standing here at this hotel in Tel Aviv, Prime Minister Netanyahu brought this up. He blamed a Palestinian terrorist group for that explosion. He said the world is rightfully outraged by what they saw happen, but he said that outrage should not be directed at Israel. And of course, we know those denials that have come from the IDF. Those are denials that President Biden has accepted and emphasized here, citing based on what he's seen, not saying specifically what evidence it was that the president saw, but it was certainly something that he tasked his team with looking into. But clearly, Prime Minister Netanyahu is addressing that because he said that this is going to be a long road to victory. That was his quote just a few moments ago when reporters were in the room. But he said that Israel will work to avoid targeting civilians, you know, including civilians, of course, as they are striking Gaza right now. That, of course, is at the center of all this. He knows that the U.S. is going to face pressure if images like that continue to happen. That's a big question of what's happening and what's being said when the reporters aren't in the room, of course. Absolutely. As you point out, I mean, we see what we see uh, and we know they have a long friendship and, and obviously very candid one. But, Christiane, the, the reality of it is, is we know that the Israelis are, are pounding Gaza daily with hundreds of airstrikes to prepare the ground for their next steps, however they're going to define any sort of ground incursion or, or what that next step may be. But you have that. It doesn't it, it seems impossible to avoid more horrific things like this happening if you don't enable people to leave and aid to come in. And at least as we know it, there has been no progress on those fronts. Someone was telling me last night, uh, the husband of a doctor we've been speaking to, an American doctor stuck in southern Gaza, Christian, that she says they have three days left of water and they're rationing it at the U.N. compound. I mean, that's at the U.N. compound. Yes, Erin, uh, and those are the lucky ones because even food is about to run out there. According to the UN who works down there, shops are going to run out of food in a few days. And water, apparently they get it exclusively almost by bottled water that has to come in from the ground, you know, so from those trucks from Egypt through the Rafa border uh, crossing, which is not open. So the, the, these are very, very difficult, you know, life-sustaining issues that certainly, I spoke to the Egyptian foreign minister yesterday, certainly they hope that at the very minimum, President Biden could get an agreement from Israel to open up uh, access to humanitarian aid and to further secure the Palestinian civilian life. As I said, it is practically, if not completely unprecedented, that an American president arrives in the region and then gets cancelled by a very, very important Arab coalition of allies, allies not just of the United States, but actually allies of Israel. That would be Egypt, Jordan and the Palestinian Authority, all of whom are, are declared allies and have peace treaties with Israel. So this is a, a really, really difficult thing. And clearly, given what we're hearing, and we have been hearing before this disaster in Gaza, before this latest disaster in Gaza, we've been hearing very, very 
very strong narrative of what's going to happen from all the Israeli officials, whether they're the prime minister, the IDF, the prime minister's spokespeople, that this is, you know, the sharp, hard end of the spear, that they are going in because this is different than it's ever been. But of course, with that comes a lot of warnings from many military analysts, many former militaries, current military officials, that this will be massively difficult. And because it is in an urban environment, trying to separate the enemy, the terrorists from the people is going to be incredibly difficult. So we are going to see more and more of this kind of mass casualties. We are going to see it if the past is any uh, prelude uh, to what's about to unfold. Secondly, we have uh, experience. We have experience in Fallujah, in Mosul. We have experience in Raqqa. We know how difficult ground wars are. And people are warning, you know, the Israelis that in the, in the heat and the emotion and the anger of having been attacked on 9-11, the United States went into a highly misguided war in Iraq, for which it is still paying for which there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Iraqis killed yes. and tens and thousands of Americans killed and wounded. And this is, this is you know, a very similar narrative to what's unfolding uh, between Israel and Hamas right yes. now. And you talk about that Iraq war, a war that, of course, has had such existential change to the United States. Even when you think about the financial situation and where the world is uh, right now, much of it can be traced back to that moment and that decision, Christiane. Thank you so much, Christiane and Caitlin. And we're going to be joined by the IDF spokesman next with more of our continued coverage continuing here on the origins of the hospital blast in Gaza. Welcome back. I'm Aaron Burnett, live in Tel Aviv, Israel, just into CNN this morning. CNN has geolocated video, and this video shows the moment of the deadly hospital blast in Gaza. The sky lights up. It is an incredibly massive blast. It erupts on the hospital ground, sending a huge cloud of smoke into the air. Now, this is video. We know what this video is of. We do not, from our analysis at this point, we're not able to independently verify what caused that blast. But we pause to consider that massive explosion and how much human life we are looking at expire in the instant that we replay. Hundreds of people are dead. Joining me now is IDF spokesman Major Daron Spielman. And Major, I, I very much appreciate your time. Uh, obviously, I, I, I was with you uh, the other day at, at a military base looking at some of the, the weapons that you have seized from Hamas. I want to begin by asking you your reaction when you look at that video. And you see that massive explosion. I know you've seen it yourself from your own sources, but we're showing it to the world now. In that moment of an explosion, hundreds of people die. How do you react to that? So first of all, if we look at this entire war that we're looking at right now, even if we go back to the very beginning, it was the senseless massacre of Israeli civilians. In this case, it's Gazan civilians that were massacred once again by Hamas and Islamic Jihad. The loss of any civilian, man, woman, or child, wherever they are in the world, is an enormous tragedy. However, when I see that video, what I understand once again is how Hamas is trying to play the entire world. It goes back to the ISIS playbook. They committed that atrocity. It was their rocket. We've clearly proven this to the world. And yet Hamas right away, without having any proof whatsoever, announced to the world that it was Israeli. 
And the world ran with this in the media. And my question is, and our question is, how could the world take Hamas as a credible source when we saw the massacring men, women, and babies just over a week ago? This was Hamas. It has their fingerprint on it. It is them who shot this rocket. Major, I know that you have put out, uh, you know, what Israel says is the proof of this, the intercepted communications, uh, where, you, where you have... Uh, people directly saying that this landed on the hospital. Uh, you have that. You've put that out. You've also put out uh, your, your, your trajectories. I'm sorry, I was looking for the right word. Trajectory of rockets that were coming out and showing that 450 rockets fired by uh, jihadist groups in Gaza have misfired and landed in Gaza since this war began 12 days ago. Major, just a very simple question. Do you feel confident that every single rocket coming out of Gaza, every single one, that you know where it's coming from and obviously generally where it's going because of your Iron Dome. Do you feel that you have 100 percent visibility? So first of all, we, uh, what I can tell you is 100 percent. Every rocket coming out of Gaza is aimed at innocent Israeli civilians. Not a single one of them is aimed at a military target. They're aimed at our cities. They're aimed at mothers and fathers and children having breakfast in their home. They're aimed at hundreds of thousands and millions of Israelis who are constantly under attack. That is where those rockets are aimed. We have invested a ton of resources, higher than any other location in the entire world, in trying to pinpoint rockets and trying to disable them. That's where my tax dollars go. In the Gaza Strip, their funds and their tax dollars and the money they get from Iran is going into rockets, not into protecting their own civilians. That is the enormous moral divide between Israel, who's concerned with its own civilians, and Hamas, who are trying to kill Israeli civilians, and at the same time, put their own civilians at risk. This was clearly a Hamas and Islamic Jihad rocket. It was fired at 659. You don't need us to talk about it. I'm holding up this piece of paper. This is an Al Jazeera screenshot. Al Jazeera was running live. Now, no one is going to say that Al Jazeera are going to be marching in any parades on behalf of the state of Israel or that they're Zionists. Al Jazeera on live footage showed the rocket taking off from Gaza, showed the explosion just around the same time, just a minute or two before Hamas went out and claimed to the world that this was an Israeli attack. There were no Israeli weapons fire in that area whatsoever. We released audio footage of two Hamas terrorists speaking between themselves in Arabic in which they acknowledge that they realize it's a rocket of Islamic Jihad that landed on the hospital. This is the fingerprint of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. They're one of the ones who committed this. And what I can be 100% sure about is that they will never tell you the truth if they shot this on their own civilians. Major, I, I want to be very clear, though, from what you're saying, because I don't want to I don't want to hear something that you're implying that you may not be trying to imply. But when you say that Al Jazeera was broadcasting live, the sort of implication some might take away was that um, the, the, was this intentional or are you trying to say this was intentional in any way or are is your view as the IDF that this was fired by Islamic Jihad, but you do believe that it was accidental? This was, no, what we are saying is that this was fired by Islamic Jihad towards Israel to kill Israeli civilians. If you follow the course of the rocket, okay. you can see that it malfunctions very soon after takeoff. It lands almost a few hundred, maybe a, a kilometer or a few hundred yards from where it was took off. And because the fuel was in the engine, still because it had not reached its target in Israel to kill Israeli civilians, the blast was enormous. We also can confirm by that audio conversation between the two Hamas 
operatives that they're saying one is saying to the other it was fired by islamic jihad in the cemetery behind the hospital and the other one was asking are you sure he says yes and it landed on top of the hospital meaning take israel out of the picture you have al jazeera footage you have hamas operatives discussing this we know from our own radar the trajectory of the rocket this was a hamas and islamic jihad rocket what i don't understand is when it comes to israel and we claim that babies were beheaded and bodies were mutilated the whole world asks us to prove this we have to go to enormous strides to try to prove the death of our own civilians here in gaza when islamic jihad bombs their own citizens people take this without any proof whatsoever the double standard here is is incredibly upsetting for us on the israel side all right major thank you very much i appreciate it major Jerron spellman joining us poppy aaron thank you very much well, a live look in Tel Aviv, where President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu are set to deliver remarks shortly behind the scenes, meeting very consequential meetings right now. Stay with us. President Biden is on the ground in Israel right now, where moments ago he reaffirmed U.S. support for Israel as it strikes back against Hamas. Listen to the president. We will continue to have Israel's back as you work to defend your people. We'll continue to work with you and partners across the region to prevent more tragedy to innocent civilians. The president expected to speak again soon. Of course, we'll bring you that live as soon as it begins. Meanwhile, in just a couple of hours, the United Nations Security Council will hold an open meeting on the unfolding crisis in the Middle East. The blast at Al-Akhli Baptist Hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds of people yesterday will, of course, be a major focus of that U.N. meeting. In its aftermath, protests have erupted. Huge protests. Those are cities across the Middle East that you see on your screen. Officials in Gaza blame Israel. The IDF says, as you just heard in that interview with Aaron, that it was an Islamic jihad rocket from within Gaza. Israeli-Palestinian journalist and foreign policy analyst Rula Jabral joins us now. She also has loved ones both in Israel and in East Jerusalem. Rula, thank you for being here on a day where there's just such a significant turn of events. The fact that Mahmoud Abbas pulled out of a planned meeting with President Biden, then it was just canceled. He will, we understand, speak on the phone on the way back from Israel with President al-Sisi and also King Abdullah. Why do you think that this was canceled and what is the significance of them not meeting face-to-face? Uh, Good morning, Poppy. I think it's very significant. I think three leaders in the region, Israel ally, America's allies, the biggest recipients uh, of uh, of military aid from the U.S., both Egypt and Jordan and the Palestinian Authority, canceling together, um, want to send a signal to the Americans, especially to this administration. We told you Without a political solution, we will be here. They've been warning the administration. They were begging and pleading with the administration to intervene, not now, but even last year when the event around the Aqsa Mosque were happening, where, you know, during Ramadan, people were being um, attacked and harassed by both settlers and the army. They, I, I think Arab leaders are frustrated because they see the same approach by the Israelis, backed by the Americans, that this conflict can be managed and can be, in any way, contained without a political solution, which they indicate as the main reason why we are here at the fifth round. This is the fifth war in Gaza. They are deeply frustrated. They are very angry because they feel ignored. 
Rula, we heard President Biden say this morning, quote, we have to also bear in mind that Hamas does not represent all of the Palestinian people and has brought them only suffering. Do you think that there is anything President Biden can do on the ground in Israel, can say when we hear from him shortly, that will prevent this from spreading into a far more grave regional conflict? I think we, yes, and I think there is the real question is, uh, it, this is going to become an American war absent a political solution. Mm. President Biden can relaunch uh, the initiatives that the Arabs themselves suggested to the Americans in 2002, the Arab Initiative, recognizing Israel in exchange of ending military occupation of the West Bank that had been lasting for 57 years, Poppy. And, mm -hmm. you know, if he could put on the table not only ceasefire, you know, uh, humanitarian aid, but some political initiative, meaning we now really want to empower the Palestinian Authority that recognize Israel, that cooperate on security with Israel. I mean, Abbas yesterday, people marched in Ramallah asking for his, you know, they, they want him gone mm -hmm. because they feel that Abbas never delivered to them. Mm -hmm. So I think President Biden can salvage the situation by proposing, by say, saying something at, about an eventual political solution that needs to happen now, not before the you know, military operation ends, but now, simultaneously. Exactly like Robin, when President, when Prime Minister Robin used to be uh, Prime Minister of Israel, he used to say that he has double-tracked strategy, negotiate and settle politically while fighting extremists. Really, you have emphasized the critical importance, uh, especially in the media, of making it extremely clear the distinction between the civilians, the Palestinian civilians who live in Gaza and, and Hamas. This is something that struck me that we heard from President Biden earlier this morning. Listen. Palestinians who are innocent, caught in the middle of this. The world's looking. We, uh, Israel has a value set like the United States does and other democracies. And, uh, and they're looking to see what we're gonna do is watching and Israel has a value set that reflects the value set of America is what he is saying. Why is it crucial to hear that from him in this moment while he's there sitting next to Netanyahu? I think President Biden heard also Israeli military on American television and also leaders blur the distinction, especially the president, President Herzog, who is a moderate uh, or, or viewed as moderate, saying there's no civilians, meaning and this is why a lot of people don't believe what happened in Gaza, because precisely of these statements, statement that there's no civilians in Gaza. The army, I believe some, you know, a military uh, official two days ago on CNN said, we're not fighting Hamas, but we're fighting civilians. So these kind of statements complicate President Biden's mission, but also in the eyes of Palestinians and the wider region, uh, the people who are protesting in Jordan, in, 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 uh, uh, in, in Turkey, in Egypt, they're telling us, we look at the statements and the deeds of the Israelis and we don't believe what happened. Also, they indicate and they are telling us, look, it happened in 1996 when Israel struck uh, UN compound in Lebanon. They said it was uh, Hezbollah, and then it turned out that it was Israel. So they, they point out to these statements and they, you know, they jump to a conclusion. And this sadly can become an America's war. And this is what President Biden, I think, is trying to prevent. Rula Jabal, so appreciate your perspective and your analysis. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Well, we are continuing our team coverage of a very volatile and consequential day in the Middle East, but we're also keeping an eye on Washington. If at first you don't succeed, you can try again and again and again. Jim Jordan heads to the House floor again, where he'll be facing a second vote for Speaker this afternoon. We'll have the latest. It's a beautiful day in Washington, unless you're a member of the House Republican Conference. Uh, in just a few hours, we think we're going to have round two for Congressman Jim Jordan in the speaker race. It has been more than two weeks now since they've had an elected speaker. The Ohio lawmaker will be facing his second vote. He lost the first vote yesterday after 20 of his fe fellow Republicans voted against him. The late night shows having a bit of a field day with it. Republicans couldn't agree on the Speaker of the House. They were unable to elect Jim Jordan. Yeah. They did this once before with Kevin McCarthy, where it took 15 votes to get elected. So only 14 more rounds to go. Hang in there, Jim. You can, you can do it, Jimbo. Joining us now, CNN political commentator Alyssa Farrah Griffin. She was a former White House communications director to Donald Trump, also a former spokesperson for the Freedom Caucus. And Jim uh, Jordan. And yes. Jim Jordan. Does he like that nickname? I don't think he likes that nickname. <laughs> I don't think he probably never called him that. So I, honestly, to cut straight to it, I want to know how this, my sense last night from talking to folks on the Hill is that he was actually bleeding more support. It didn't seem like it was going to head in his direction. So what happens now? Yeah, Jim Jordan's facing a tremendous uphill battle. Um, I would expect to see more defections if they take when they take this to the floor later today. But his team says they're still in it. They've been trying to wrangle with some of the moderate members, see if there's some deals that can be cut. But here's the thing is I think for a lot of the moderates, sure, there's some personal animus for Jim Jordan, but he to them is sort of reflective of the obstructionism that they've seen in the House that has brought the conference to a screeching halt. Even though Jim himself supported McCarthy, they see him as part of what created the Matt Gateses of the world. I would suspect this goes to a vote. I don't see how they are there. But the reality is no one has, no Republican has 217 votes in the House. I'm hearing from more members that actually extending Patrick McHenry's powers in, yeah. um, as Speaker pro temp is more likely to happen. But, but, uh, Hakeem Jeffries has had positive things to say about McHenry as well. I mean, you need Democrats, right, to be able to do this until one of the proposals from a Republican was still November 17th, right? Help uh, yeah. Keep the government open. What would that actually look like? It's really just about, like, keeping the lights on, the functioning, having committee work continue. And, of course, you've got about 30 days out to deal with government funding. Patrick McHenry is generally liked. He's a lot more of just sort of a legislative wheeler and dealer than a showman. He's not um, a right-wing firebrand by any means. So I think that may end up being where we go, because take Jim Jordan out of this. There's not someone you put up, you know, Byron Donalds might throw his name in, Elise Stefanik. Those votes are not there. This just underscores how broken the House Republican conference is. It's all coming to a head. But this does test the theory that conservatives, myself included, probably 10 years ago, had that perhaps if we put up one of the most conservative members, we could get the House in order. It could run the way that we mm. promised our voters. That does not exist. You cannot have 20 people or 18 who won Biden districts and also keep the Matt Gateses and the Freedom Caucus guys happy. There's got to be somebody in the middle that people can support, but it doesn't exist. The beauty of Jim Jordan having to rely on trying to make backroom deals with moderates <laughs> to become Speaker of the House, uh, it knows no bounds. Uh, I, I think more broadly, with the time we've left, does this actually matter in terms of politically, in terms of where 2024 is headed? You know, you hear from DCCC and all Democrats, like, this is going to be... This shows everything. This is the perfect contrast. Does this resonate? I think it matters for the House. I yeah. think if you're a Mike Lawler, you're a Don Bacon, you're somebody in a, a swing district, it's really hard to make the case that you should be reelected when, which, by the way, both of those men, I think, should be reelected. 
But when the conference doesn't even work, when Congress has basically been at a standstill for two days, I think it jeopardizes the House majority. Doesn't have bigger bearings than that. Donald Trump endorsed Jim Jordan. That still didn't get him the numbers. Um, but it is it, it does jeopardize the House Republican majority in a very big way. And by the way, if I may say, this all happening while America's closest ally in the Middle East is at war. It's so unserious. It is petty. It is something that just needs to be resolved. Yeah. It's shocking to me that this moment has not apparently changed the willingness to give here. To Correct. Get a if Israel Are you surprised under, by that? Yes. If Israel coming under a terrorist attack and being in a state of war with Hamas is not a sobering moment where we And say, Biden's there. The U.S. president is there. It's the juxtaposition is stunning. Um, it is it's it's just unserious is the best word I can come up with. And by the way, the House Republican conference is still largely by and large pro-Israel. So you would think this would be a moment to stand up. That's why I think it ends up likely going to a McHenry. Just keeping the lights on. That is the type of aspirational Leadership goals we, we want our lawmakers <laughs> to pursue. Alyssa, thank you, thank as you. always. And CNN This Morning continues right now. It is the top of the hour. We're so glad you're with us on this breaking news this morning. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett, Clarissa Ward, or Caitlin Collins, all live in Israel, where President Biden is on the ground right now, vowing to support Israel as its war with Hamas takes quite a turn. Outrage and protests across the Arab world after the explosion at a hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds of innocent civilians. Officials in Gaza claim it was an Israeli airstrike. The Israeli military insists it was a misfired rocket launched by Palestinian militants right near the hospital. CNN has geolocated, look at this, this video. This is the moment of the blast. This morning, President Biden appearing to take Israel's side. Listen to the president. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But there's a lot of people out there not sure. So we've got, we got to overcome a lot of things. Now, shortly before President Biden landed in Israel, the Israeli military laid out evidence blaming the explosion on the Islamic Jihad militant group, including intercepted audio of Hamas operatives allegedly talking about the misfired rocket. Despite Israel's denials, a wave of anti-Israel, anti-American, pro-Palestinian pro uh, protests have erupted across the Middle East. In Lebanon, hundreds of protesters tried to break through security barriers near the U.S. embassy. Police fired tear gas and water cannons to drive them away. We have team coverage across Israel and across the region. Aaron Burnett joins us live in Tel Aviv. Aaron, the president, President Biden, has uh, flown into an incredibly volatile situation and a very different set of meetings than he expected even 24 hours ago. Certainly very different, right? He was thinking that he would be able to meet with both Israelis and uh, the Arab countries at the center of this, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, King Abdullah of Jordan, as well as al-Sisi of Egypt. That meeting, of course, canceled. And obviously, I, I know, you know, Caitlin is with the president and we'll talk about what what actually he can achieve. But it is these protests across the region uh, that have now risen the stakes. The stakes have gone up and up, and those protests are going to continue even today in Tunisia during the day. They started last night around 11 p.m. Eastern in Beirut, in Amman, in Baghdad. Uh, we have seen them, and as you say, Phil, they are anti-Israel. They are pro-Palestine. 
And they are increasingly, in some cases, also anti-American, which is just proof of how closely President Biden is now tied to this, of course, historically, of course, always in perception, but showing up at this moment and only meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu with that great embrace certainly adds to an image uh, that the United States, as Biden says, has Israel's back uh, and, and is inextricably linked to whatever Israel does next. And as we're waiting on Biden to speak, uh, Caitlin, that is what's at stake. And I know he's been in these closed door meetings, made some comments in between. Where are we uh, in his meetings right now? Yeah, just to remind everyone what has transpired here since President Biden got on the ground, which he's only been here for a few hours. He's only going to be here in total for a few hours. This is not a very lengthy trip for him. Right now, he is still meeting with the wartime cabinet. That is that new cabinet that has been formed by Prime Minister Netanyahu. They, are, of course, are talking. One thing that the president came here to find out, which is what Israel's objectives are going to be in this war. What is it going to look like if Israel does go into Gaza? What are their stated goals? Those were the tough questions that the White House said President Biden was going to have for his friend, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, while he's here on the ground. We'll see what what, the, what that looks like. But of course, the other thing that is complicated, what was already a challenging trip for this White House, is that explosion at the hospital in Gaza. And just to, to set the scene for our viewers, it had not been that long that President Biden had been here on the ground. He had greeted Prime Minister Netanyahu. He had embraced him in a hug. And then he came here. And almost one of his first remarks was about that explosion, where he embraced Israel's denials. He said that based on what he has seen, he said it was, quote, the other team, not you. And when he said not you, obviously that was a reference to Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was sitting next to him. We know the IDF has blamed uh, a Palestinian militant group for this, a, ter a terrorist group. That is who they say is to blame. Of course, authorities in, uh, in Gaza have said it is the Israeli Defense Forces that is to blame. That is something that Israel has strongly denied here. And President Biden siding with Israel in that. Now, we've asked the White House, is it evidence that he saw? What was it that made him buy into those denials? They have not yet clarified that statement. But it is an important one that he was making. And then, of course, Netanyahu himself later denied it. That is an undertone, though, for this entire trip, because as you noted, it has changed what this trip is going to look like. There is no follow visit to Jordan. And I should note, you can see a lectern here behind me. President Biden will be here once he finishes up with his meetings today, making remarks. And we'll see, of course, what is the culmination of this historic visit of which I should note, Netanyahu said he's the first U.S. president to ever visit Israel while Israel was at war. All right. And of course, we're going to await that. Caitlin is in the room uh, and we'll hear it and bring all of that uh, to us. Well, the blast on the hospital in Gaza that has disrupted this trip and changed the trajectory of this story, sparking mass protests across the region and raising huge question marks about where this goes from here. In Jordan, local security forces were seen using tear gas to disperse huge crowds. Those crowds were gathering near the Israeli embassy. That was in Amman. I want to go to our chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, uh, in Ashkelon, uh, south of here in Israel. And Clarissa, this tragic blast at the hospital in Gaza, it is, it, it, and history, of course, will show what other points come. But at this moment, this is an inflection point in this war. It is an inflection point. I think that the hope 
of President Biden and Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken was that they were going to be able to announce some kind of a tangible deliverable in terms of humanitarian aid, opening up a corridor, opening up potentially humanitarian zones, as Blinken had talked about. There is no longer uh, a strong sense that that's going to be imminently feasible. The fact that President Biden has had his meetings uh, with the Egyptian leader, with Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader, uh, and also with the Jordanian king canceled means it becomes all the more challenging to see how on earth there can be any kind of consensus built around how to deal with the uh, humanitarian catastrophe that is playing out in Gaza. And as the world is kind of arguing back and forth, he said, she said, and finger pointing, I do think it bears reminding our viewers that the situation there is at absolute crisis point. Uh, the hospitals are no longer functioning. We have been talking to doctors who are performing operations without anesthesia. Uh, we have been talking to aid workers to the UN who say no water, no electricity, only enough food to potentially last four or five more days. Uh, the UN says 600,000 people displaced from their homes in northern Gaza in the last, was well, since Friday, since the announcement was made by Israelis that uh, people in northern Gaza should leave their homes. Meanwhile, you've seen strikes continuing in southern Gaza, making it frightening for people to leave their homes because they don't feel that there's anywhere where they can find refuge or respite. Uh, and I would say now we hear strikes continuing uh, throughout the day. Uh, very little prospect uh, from any side on kind of budging on sitting down at the table and taking a collective deep breath and trying to work together uh, to deliver something uh, in the form of, of respite for the people who are trapped in there. Uh, many foreign nationals also trapped in there, I should add. The U.S. Uh, embassy in Cairo estimates uh, more than 250 Americans who have been camped out by that Rafa border crossing now, Aaron, for, for days on end, trying desperately to get out. Um, but with the situation, with these inflamed tensions, with these protests, of course, you have to take into account that for Arab leaders right now, it is very difficult to sit down and meet with President Biden if they can't offer some guarantee or something that they can then show to their people and say, look, yeah. See, we are fighting for the Palestinians as well. So it becomes a really complex issue, a very dangerous potential inflection point. Yes. And the risk, as always, as we have talked about many times with this conflict, of this becoming a broader regional conflagration, Aaron. Yes, and Clarissa's talking about those explosions, and you see the smoke over Gaza. Just to show it again, and we continue to show it when we see it so that everyone understands the constant state of bombardment that Gaza is under. Clarissa talking about some of those Americans, uh, one of them uh, in touch with her family whenever she can, and even given the power issues uh, at a place like the UN compound, sometimes that's once every 24 hours, uh, saying that uh, looking at where we are right now, that would be two days of water left. And that's at the UN. To give you a sense of the fact that this isn't just a humanitarian crisis, it is a humanitarian crisis that could become something even bigger and even worse, and we are hours away. Uh, something must be done. And Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. And Ash Cologne. Phil, back to you. Clarissa mentioning the acute difficulty, complexity that comes on the diplomatic side of things right now between the president and those canceled meetings with Arab leaders. An accelerant to that difficulty, that complexity, obviously, was the blast, the hospital 
and Gaza. Now, at this moment in time, we have seen from the IDF their uh, rationale for why they were not responsible. Obviously, you've seen the protests as well of people in the air world that don't believe that. CNN has now geolocated video that shows the moment of the deadly hospital blast in Gaza. Now, I'm going to pull it up here. Because as you can see, as this video plays, the sky, it lights up as a large blast erupts right there on the hospital grounds. It sends a huge cloud of smoke in the air. Now, it's important to note, CNN at this point cannot independently verify what caused the blast. We're still working on that. But I do want to bring in CNN military analyst, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, here with me at the Magic Wall. When you see that in isolation, one of the things we have heard repeatedly from uh, officials that are pointing to the IDF, they say, no rocket could make an explosion that big. What, what do you see there? Well, first, what I'll start off by saying, Phil, is I've heard the expression fog of war about 100 times so far this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm not a bomb analyst, right. neither are you, but what you see here is a very large fiery explosion. That's not usually something that comes with a, a guided bomb from an aircraft. What it seems to be, and this is just a, a, a really conjecture on my part, is a rocket that still has fuel on board. That's the indicator, uh, the fuel propellant that pushes a rocket forward. When it hit the ground, the rocket exploded like they always do when they hit, but there was a lot of fuel in that rocket too because it had fallen out of the sky. So you see a very large blast, a fiery blast in a parking lot. So to this point, and I think this has been one of the pieces of information that we've heard from IDF officials and their view or their, uh, the evidence they're presenting, mm -hmm. which the president, President Biden, uh, seems to agree with at this point, and that is what you're saying right now, the trajectory, right? What they're showing based on uh, their radar footage, these are rocket launches or rocket strikes headed towards Israel, and this is where the hospital was. So the idea that this was a malfunction uh, of some sort, how often does that happen? Is that, is that something that happens with regularity? With the kind of uh, rockets uh, that Hamas has or the Jihad Jihadist Union has, yes, it happens a lot. They are shipped primarily from uh, Iran. They're not good rockets. They're four different types. They go different distances. There are a lot of rocket failures. And Israel has said they have seen a lot of rocket failures, uh, over 400 of them so far. So when you see one fall out of the sky like that, it's because the engine cuts off. They are not precision rockets. They're, they're fired out of the back of literally a box. So in this particular one, you see a series of rockets coming out of a point of origin. That's where the rockets allegedly were fired from. There are about six or seven lines. That means they're going in different trajectories. This is the one that's right over the hospital. And there's another film of a rocket going up the engine cutting off, and then seconds later, you see that explosion on the ground that you just showed. The other issue, and I think this is one that uh, I've been, that struck me, and because you've heard the IDF officials talk about it a lot, is the, the craters, right? Yeah. The location of where the rocket landed or where the explosion happened uh, and the, the scale of both where it hit compared to the hospital, not on the hospital directly, uh, but also what it created or what the kind of blast radius was compared to Israeli footage showing, you know, there, this is what a crater is supposed to look like in one of our strikes. This does not have that. What, yeah. is, does that track for you? It, it does. This is the hospital building right. uh, as a satellite imagery. This is a parking lot. When we see the cars in that parking lot, most of them are burned, not all of them. There's not kind of the blast that you would expect from a very large bomb like that coming off an aircraft. It looks more like a lot of fire, 
a lot of burning, some shrapnel against the building. Again, this is the parking lot. That's the explosion outside. So evidence seems to indicate, and these are facts that don't counter emotions. What we've been seeing back and forth all morning long is the emotions on both sides. Hey, we've got the facts versus the opinion. Um, That's warfare. Unfortunately, that's what always happens in war. You have to contend with it. Yeah, and I think one of the big questions President Biden will face after he's done with his meetings when he comes to speak, if he takes any questions during his remarks, is what made him conclude based on these issues that you're laying out, whether U.S. intelligence has an assessment, we don't know yet. We do I, I, know. Would, I would venture to say that U.S. intelligence has additive intelligence to, to what this. Israel. And we know that they had obtained or the Israelis had passed over their intelligence as well. Right. Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Poppy? So with us now at the desk, editor and foreign affairs columnist for Bloomberg, Bobby Ghosh. Bobby, thanks very much for, for being here. I, I want to start with something that we just heard from our, uh, one of our foreign policy analysts, Rula Jabal, uh, who has so much experience in the region. She said... This sadly could become America's war. This is what President Biden is trying to prevent. What do you think when you hear that as he's there? Well, certainly that will be the perception of uh, a lot of people that we've seen in the street scenes that we've, you've been showing in the past couple of hours, that that will be the perception, the fact that Biden's there at this moment, that he seems to be giving Israel, you know, the perception is that he's giving Israel cover to do what happened last night, even if that is not the president's intention. That it will be seen as America's war, but Biden has the opportunity to make it America's peace. How? If he can lean into Netanyahu, that private conversation they're having as we speak here, off camera, and persuade uh, Netanyahu to hold off on a ground offensive, to allow humanitarian aid go in, it might just... Just, it's still a very, very heavy lift, but it might just show that, that the United States is not there just to back up Israel, but also try to bring a resolution to the conflict to give the people of Gaza a break. Get that humanitarian aid in. Yes, you need Israel for yep. some of the crossings. You also need Egypt. Yes, and but Egypt, would... Egypt is waiting. We've also seen images of those uh, convoys of, of humanitarian aid waiting at the border. Egypt's made it clear they're not going to take these people. They're not going to take the, the uh, Palestinian refugees, but they're, they're ready to help. And the United States has been leaning on Egypt uh, to help. Um, now it's up to Israel, uh, substantially, to allow that possibility to, to, to uh, take a break from the shelling of uh, Palestinian targets, to allow people to leave or to allow aid to come in. That's, that's basically, I suspect, what Biden's pushing for Right now, whether he can whether he can persuade uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu is another question. The blood is up in Israel for for very good reasons. People are still reeling from the shock of what happened two Saturdays ago. The images, even now, there are fresh Im- images emerging of what those Hamas uh, uh, people did, those terrorists did when they were in southern Israel. Why Israelis are seeing those images and they want. Something to be done about it, which is not an unreasonable uh, position to take. And that's exactly what we have been hearing all morning from Aaron in Tel Aviv, from Clarissa in Ashkelon, a real need among the Israeli people for vengeance, for revenge, for what happened to them for this attack. Why would Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu hold back from that? Every instinct that he has will be will be telling him not to hold back, to, on the contrary, to lead into the into the fight, to send in those ground troops. That's, the, that's why it's such a heavy lift for Biden. Biden's going to have to 
to press him, perhaps using the example of what happened in this country, our response to 9-11, and then the, the, the problem of going into Afghanistan without a long-term plan. Um, Biden's going to have to use the United States as a cautionary tale rather than as an example of what to do. It has to be an example of what not to do after you've been hit by such a horrific uh, act of terror. Bobby Ghosh, thank you for the analysis. Thanks. Well, President Biden remains behind closed doors with Israel's war cabinet, but he is expected to speak with victims of last week's Hamas attacks, as well as families of hostages still held by Hamas. After that meeting, they're desperately searching for answers about their loved ones. We're going to speak to a man whose son is one of the 14 Americans who remain unaccounted for. That's next. With President Biden on the ground reaffirming U.S. support for Israel in Tel Aviv, the families of the hostages held by Hamas continue the agonizing wait for updates on their loved ones. Our next guest spoke to President Biden last week about his son, Sagi Dekel Shen. He's one of the 14 Americans who remain unaccounted for following the Hamas terror attack. His family says Sagi was last seen on October 7th after rushing his pregnant wife and two daughters into a bomb shelter while they attempted to guard his kibbutz near the Gaza border. Joining us now, Sigi's father, Jonathan Dekelchen. He's a history professor at Hebrew University at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, Jonathan, we appreciate your time. You spoke to President Biden last week. I think afterwards you said you were proud to the conversation made you proud to be an American. What do you want to hear from the president today when he speaks in Tel Aviv? Well, um, I, I would hope that when he's speaking today with Prime Minister Netanyahu, that there'll be a renewed commitment and you know rock solid commitment that, that I believe that the president has to doing everything possible uh, while Israel pursues its, its other war aims to keep the hostages as safe as possible and to do everything that can be done uh, within this ongoing conflict to get them home safely or at the very least uh, show some signs of life um, uh, for the vast for, for everyone but one of these hostages. Um, it's important for us, I think I can speak here for all of the hostages, Americans and, and, and all of the other nationalities, Israelis included, um, that we understand what needs to be done with Hamas overall, but we absolutely uh, need for the well-being of our loved ones to be prioritized. Uh, we know that's true for President Biden, and it would be good to get some reassurance from uh, our own government. We're looking at pictures while we talk to you, Jonathan, of Sagi, your son, and he and his wife are parents to a six-year-old and a three-year-old. As I understand it, she's also pregnant with a third daughter, and they endured horror, absolute horror, during that attack for the better part of 20 hours. And I, I wonder just, obviously, uh, you are comforting them through this time, but how are they coping? Well, my, my daughter-in-law and her two beautiful little girls are like all of the other survivors from our kibbutz and I imagine all of the other um, border communities, they're utterly traumatized. Uh, they experienced um, death right outside their door. Mm. They heard their father, their husband in hand-to-hand -hand combat with Hamas terrorists. Um, when they walked out that door, they saw uh, bodies everywhere and the kibbutz around them, this cooperative farm, burnt to the ground. 
Um, I guess they're doing as well as they can. The community, of course, is rallying around them. Mm. Uh, they're strong, but you know, it's this is it's it's kind of incomprehensible between the unknowns about their father and the fact that all of us have n- no homes to go back to, right. nor any property. Everything's looted from our right. people. It's from the smallest toys to the largest tractors. I think incomprehensible is such a kind of perfect word to describe the horrors and the experiences, because I don't think anybody could ever imagine that this could happen, at least broadly, on the ground. Is this something you could have ever foreseen? Even in my worst dreams, to be honest, you know, it's, it's, I've been part of the security team, civilian security team, and that's really important to, to emphasize. These border communities are, it's, it's a bunch of farmers. These are civilians. We did have security teams civilian security teams and because we live in a hostile region with a terrorist organization that is the government in, in the Gaza Strip. But this sort of scenario was never, ever on the table. And in any case, uh, the army, our army, the IDF, was supposed to come and relieve us after a few minutes yeah. of, of engaging terrorists. And it took nine hours. Um, in, in our kibbutz, there are different counts, but or about in the middle, nine hours of, of the destruction of our community, the murder of dozens and the abduction of dozens more back to Gaza. Jonathan, it was just a couple of years ago that you wrote this in the Times of Israel. This was during several days of unrest that left hundreds dead. You wrote, for the sake of my children and the children of Gaza, I hope for peace in their lifetimes, even if the past two decades of bloodshed make optimism difficult. What about now? Do you hang on to that hope even now? I hang on to that hope because there's no alternative. I don't want my grandchildren. I've kind of given up on my children, but I have 10 wonderful grandchildren, some of them deeply traumatized right now. I can't give up hope. But what I do know, what I do know is that my family and the country as a whole and the people of Gaza overall We'll have no peace, not even a chance, not even a remote chance of peace, as long as Hamas remains the governing authority uh, in Gaza. And so just for the sake of hope, if anyone had any doubt before this past Saturday or two Saturdays ago that Hamas was anything other than a savage terrorist organization set on only murdering Jews and destroying our country, then, you know, there's no more gray area. Uh, sadly, sadly, but I believe that a grandfather my age in Gaza, who's not a member of Hamas, wants more or less the same thing for his grandchildren. And I just have to believe that, you know, if if the government of Israel and um, the people of Gaza uh, have an opportunity to look each other in the eye, uh, truly, without the flawed leadership on both sides, to be honest with you, Uh, then for our grandchildren, there might be a chance for peace. Yes. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much. Our hearts are obviously with you and the safe return uh, we are all hoping for of your son. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Of course. We also want to take a moment this morning to remember the 17 journalists who have lost their lives so far reporting on the Israel-Hamas war. The Committee to Protect Journalists says eight more have been injured, and it's believed three are either missing or detained. Thirteen. The journalists were Palestinian, three were Israeli, one was Lebanese. 
Sharif Mansour, the Middle East program coordinator for the committee, says, quote, journalists across the region are making great sacrifices to cover this heartbreaking conflict. All parties must take steps to ensure their safety. It is not just their physical safety that is of concern. One of our colleagues, CNN journalist in Gaza, says conditions there are unlivable. The water is undrinkable. Again, that's our colleague Ibrahim, who is trying to flee with his family and his young children. Our sincerest thanks and appreciation to all the journalists in the field uh, that are risking their lives every day. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Aaron Burnett in Tel Aviv, Israel. President Biden right now here in meetings in Israel right now. He has met with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, appeared with him in his war cabinet. He said that based on the evidence he's seen, Biden said this, that the deadly blast at that Gaza hospital was caused by what he used as, quote, the other team not Israel. Of course, use of the word teams in that way is, is, is part of the reason uh, why the world does see the United States so inextricably tied with Israel. Palestinian Ministry of Health now says the death toll in that explosion has increased, they say, to at least 471 people. Whatever the final numbers are, it is a horror. And earlier this morning, the Israeli Defense Forces presented detailed evidence that they say shows the deadly blast at the hospital in Gaza was not their fault. They showed satellite imagery. They showed rocket trajectories. They showed intercepted communications. They showed all of it. Even so, though, massive pro-Palestinian protests are erupting throughout the region in Baghdad, in Amman, in Jordan, in Beirut and Lebanon, uh, in Tunis and Tunisia. And there are also clashes in the West Bank today between pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli protesters. Those are clashes uh, right uh, across from here in the West Bank. Let's go straight to Ben Wiedemann because he is live in southern Lebanon. And Ben, it was, what, 2.15, 2.30 last, uh, this morning, I'm sorry, when you and I were speaking and you had seen those crowds a start just hours after that blast at the hospital to gather in Beirut and, and, and try to break through some barriers heading in the direction of the U.S. Embassy. What are you hearing and seeing now on the ground? Well, in Beirut, uh, just uh, at the moment, there's a, pro a protest, a rally going on in the southern suburbs of the city, uh, organized by Hezbollah. Hezbollah had called for an unprecedented day of rage. What we're seeing in Lebanon is scattered protests, but I wouldn't call it uh, unprecedented in any sense. But nonetheless, uh, the mood in Lebanon and throughout the Middle East is starting to worry U.S. officials. Here in, in Lebanon, the State Department has said that family members of U.S. government personnel and other non emergency staff are now allowed to leave the country on a case-by-case -case basis, keeping in mind that the staff at the U.S. Embassy all live on the grounds of the embassy. It's a highly fortified uh, installation. They rarely can go out except with armed escorts. But that certainly indicates a level of worry. And we're seeing the worries shared by others. The Canadian foreign minister has advised Canadians in Lebanon that uh, they might consider booking flights out as long as long as there are commercial flights available. Swiss Air and Lufthansa have announced they're no longer flying here. So there are concerns that the situation already very volatile could get worse. Aaron. 
All right, Ben Wiedemann, thank you very much in Lebanon. And, and Phil, it is when you talk about airlines canceling flights, obviously they do it out of caution. They, they don't do it because something's already happened. They do it because there is the risk something could happen. Nonetheless, when you start to see these international carriers cancel flights, as they have already done here in Israel, now in Lebanon, it is, uh, you know, an ominous feeling for everyone and including so many people who want to get out and are unable to do so. Yeah, it just underscores just how volatile this moment is, which you didn't think it could get more volatile 24 hours ago. And yet here we are uh, as these very consequential meetings are happening where you are and one of those meetings in Amman was canceled because of this moment that we're in. Aaron Burnett, stay with us. We're going to come back to you. We're also keeping an eye, though, on Washington, where in just a few hours, the House will take to the floor to vote again on Jim Jordan's nomination to be speaker. We'll have the latest. Well, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan's speaker bid is in peril this morning. Just hours from now, the House will hold or scheduled to hold a second speaker vote after Jordan lost in the first round. No person having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. Jordan has been reaching out to the 20 members of his conference who voted against him on Tuesday and earlier this morning got an endorsement from the previous speaker, Congressman Kevin McCarthy. The chaos was created by this um, crazy eights that are led by Gates and every single Democrat. So now they voted to stop one branch of government. We're electing a new speaker. Uh, Jim Jordan is prepared to do that job. I lost about 20 on the first round, too. Uh, coming into the second round, the thing I would look at, making sure that vote number goes up. If he can hold his votes and number goes up, I think he can get there. And uh, I believe that's exactly what will happen today. Crazy Eights, led by Gates. The former speaker clearly has more time on his hands than he used to. Joining us now is CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox, live outside Congressman Jordan's office this morning. Uh, what's the game plan here? What are you hearing behind the scenes? Yeah, well, look, today Jordan goes to the floor at 11 a.m. to try and pick up a couple of votes on the floor of the House of Representatives. But there's a real chance, Phil, that he could start to lose some of that support on the floor. There are a number of members we are watching who potentially may have voted for Jordan on the first round, but may not stick with him on a second or third ballot. If he starts to hemorrhage support, then you get into a situation where there are a number of active discussions happening right now among Republicans about bringing a resolution to the floor of the House as soon as today that would potentially empower McHenry to continue being the speaker pro tem, but with additional power so that he could bring legislation to the floor. There is really a breaking point happening within the Republican conference right now as a number of members are looking around, seeing the reality, seeing that there is likely no one in their conference at this moment who could get the 217 votes needed to be the next speaker. In that case, you have a lot of Republicans who want to govern in this moment, in this moment of crisis. It has been more than two weeks without a speaker. It has been more than 10 days since an attack in Israel. And you are potentially staring down a government shutdown in less than a month at this point. Those Republicans believe that it is a moment where McHenry needs to be empowered so he can start bringing legislation to the floor. If they introduce a resolution today, they have two legislative days to act on it. That means that there could be active discussions with Democrats because in all likelihood, they are going to need Democratic support to get that effort across 
cross the finish line because there are a number of Republicans who are not going to support empowering McHenry. They want Jim Jordan to be the next speaker. They want that to be the focus at this moment. But obviously, Phil, we are in a situation where it's basically Groundhog's Day. Every single day, it is not clear who the Republican is who could lead this conference with such a narrow majority in this moment. So. Yeah, it's such a good point. It had been on the periphery, that idea of empowering Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry, now very clearly moving toward the mainstream. Lauren Fox, thank you. All right, joining us now, Republican Congressman from New York, Nick LaLotta. He is one of 20 Republicans who voted against Jim Jordan's bid to become Speaker yesterday. Congressman, it's great to have you. Appreciate it. Good morning. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Jim Jordan said yesterday to, to Lawrence reporting, no one in our conference wants to see any type of coalition government with Democrats. What do you say? Would you be supportive, vote for a resolution that would empower the Speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry? Try to keep the government open, let's say? Well, well, I think the Speaker pro tem, and, and some people get a little confused by that term because there's some Latin in there, is merely the temporary speaker. And when there's a vacancy in the office of speaker, I think the Speaker pro tem not only can act, he or she should act, much like the way a vice president can or should act in a vacancy of the office of president. There should be a continuity of government. This position, the Speaker pro temper, was contemplated post 9-11 specifically for the continuity of government. Business should go on in the House of Representatives in spite of there being a bona fide speaker, and we should accept the fact, and it does not require a vote in my opinion, the Speaker pro tem has every right, duty, and responsibility and authority to act in the, in the absence of a bona fide speaker. I would encourage that he do so right away. Full capacity as a vice president would in the analogy you're giving? Just with full capacity of the speaker, with the full abilities of a speaker as a vice president would in the analogy you just gave? Yeah, absolutely. Has every duty, right, and responsibility of a bona fide speaker. This is not a position merely to be a caretaker of the election of the next speaker. We have a clerk of the House of Representatives that can do that administrative function. This position was contemplated post 9-11 when our country was under attack and we contemplated losing multiple elected officials at the highest level, of course logic would, would dictate and would not need go, to have gone to law school to come to this conclusion that the Speaker pro tem absolutely has every right, duty, and responsibility and authority to act in the absence of a bona fide speaker. Congressman, I think the, the rub here, the tension here is that uh, Patrick McHenry, who is the Speaker pro tem, does have people that have gone to law school that disagree with your interpretation. <laughs> I'm not saying who's right one way or the other, and which brings the question, if he disagrees, would you support this resolution from a congressman, Dave Joyce, uh, to give him those powers you say he should have already? Well, that's tricky because, you know, everything is based upon legal precedence in this town and specifically with roles that we have in the House. And if we facilitate a vote, we're affirming the, the failed notion that it requires a vote to act. So I think that one should really seek uh, some more legal guidance on this uh, and a vote probably taints the very notion that the speaker has every, every single power uh, assigned to the speaker pro tem has every single power assigned to the speaker. The other way to look at it is that a vote in the affirmative would set some, some precedent for this. Um, what would it take to get you to a yes on Jordan? Well, I've been speaking with, uh, with, with Representative Jordan over the last couple of weeks since he became a candidate for speaker. And I've announced my criteria quite clearly. I'm looking for a reasonable Republican, a common sense conservative to lead the House of Representatives. And specifically in the 118th Congress, we understand that just several weeks from now, the government runs out of money. 
I was one of the Republicans who supported funding the government to ensure that our troops got paid. We should not play games with soldier pay. And I've asked every single candidate for speaker who has approached me in the last couple of weeks, will you ensure the government gets funded? And that has been my number one criteria. Yes, we should pursue the commitment to America. Yes, we should continue to, to reduce spending. But we must keep the government open while we do so. We must show the troops that we will put them first. And I've asked that criteria of all of our candidates, including Representative Jordan, and I've not yet been satisfied by his answer. What happens next? And I think the reason I ask that question, and I know everybody's asking the question right now, but you know, in talking to people inside your conference, it actually feels like the opposition to Jordan may start growing as soon as the second vote. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's likely. I think it's more likely that there are less Jordan votes on round two than in round one, especially if he doesn't address things like how to fund the government. Uh, that's a big issue for a number of us who are a no right now. If there is no specific resolution on that, and we're not looking for promises, we are looking for bona fide actions, statements which will make it very clear that we're not going to play games with soldier pay moving forward. Yes, we should negotiate with the administration who is weak on the border, who is spending a whole bunch of our future generation's tax dollars. We should negotiate from a position of strength. But to use soldier pay as a bargaining chip is a red line for me. I thought it was interesting that your fellow Republican, who also didn't vote for Jim Jordan, Carlos Jimenez of Florida, voted for McCarthy and said, by the way, said, I'm not going to be part of a coup. Do you see it as a coup? Yeah, this is a political coup. Eight Republicans joined with 210 Democrats to remove a speaker who was making a lot of progress for our nation, who at times stepped across the aisle and when we raised the debt ceiling, when we funded the government, was doing the right things to fulfill our commitment to America, to make life better for my constituents, uh, obviously for Carlos's constituents as well, you know, and to throw out somebody who was making that progress was a political coup that needs to be addressed. We should reform the motion to vacate rule. One should not be able to merely vacate the speaker. One should have to come with a bona fide alternative to do so, or else we're gonna end in this chaos every time. It took McCarthy years to build relationships and to gain confidences and trust to get elected by his peers. And to think that somebody's gonna be able to do it just in a couple of days or even a couple of weeks is unreasonable. Those folks who voted to vacate the chair knew this chaos would ensue, they're responsible for it, and we need to find a way to move on. And perhaps the best way to do so is to have a speaker pro tem run the house and to do the people's business and to get that started right away. Congressman Nick Lalota of New York, we appreciate your time, sir, thank you. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.